Welcome to Joe Dawowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, and so much more, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at Jodorowsky and Mobius's graphic novel Magnum Opus, 34 Years in the Making, has been described as one of the finest comic books ever made. It's the Inkle. Joining me on this trip into the Jodoverse are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's the Meta Baron himself, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. Thanks for the title. That makes me feel very tough and cool. Yeah. somewhat heartless. Well, I mean, I, honestly, it, it does seem to envelop your personality to a very great extent. Liam, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to note, I would say, that this is not the first time that you and I have talked about comic books and graphic novels on a podcast before. We previously had a podcast devoted to the Canadian superhero group Alpha Flight. That's true. We did. And, and you know, with a very small group of people, it was very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Canadians, that small group of people. Yeah, yeah, sure. But so we have some experience uh, about, uh, you know, talking about this medium, though we are, I think, very uh, upfront about the idea that we are in no way experts about comics and graphic novels. But if you want to hear us talk about that, you can check out old episodes of The Flight Stuff, Liam. But for a project of this magnitude, we need some serious help. And with us, as always, on Joe Dawowski is the wonderful writer-director, Julia Marchesi. Julia, how are you? I, I'm a little miffed. I don't get. I don't get a title. He gets to be a meta baron. I got nothing. I get no. I don't. I don't get to even get to be queen of the rats. Come on now, <laughs> Julia. I have to admit, I did go through a lot of the different uh, uh, titles that are given to characters, particularly female characters in these novels. Some of them are not very complimentary. Sure, sure, I understand. <laughs> I mean, uh, in a, fact, I could. I could be an Aristo, though. I mean, that's cool. You know what? You are. In my mind, you are right now. That I got day. that little halo around my head looking all cute and getting up to all sorts of shenanigans. <laughs> and we will talk about those shenanigans uh, in a lot of detail in just a little bit. How are you doing today, Julia? Just feeling good? Feeling excited about yes. diving into the world of Jodorowsky once again? I, he always makes me very excited. I, I get I get all kind of jittery in my seat. Go yes, let's talk more about it. And I think it's funny already that we I, we talked about in our first episode. How do you pronounce? How do you in particular pronounce Jodorowsky? Right? And we've all we all pronounce it differently, and that's fine. And already I'm like, you said how did you say it? I say the incal. How did you say it? So I said Inkel. You know, it's funny. At okay. the end, I'm glad that you're talking about this, Julia. Thank you so much. Because at the end of our most recent episode, I said the incal. That's how I was referring to it as. Right. And then over the last few days, I've been watching YouTube videos about the Inkal, and everyone in all of those videos called it the Inkal instead. And I was like, I must have heard Inkal somewhere. I'm not just making it up. And then I did hear in another video someone say Inkal. But at that point, I had, I had put it in my brain that a majority of, let's say, the English-speaking world say Inkal. So that's what I'm sticking with. That said okay. – I'm not correcting anyone on this episode. There's going to be a lots of pronunciation issues before all this is said and done. Well, I watched a video earlier today with the man himself, the master himself, and he mm -hmm. said Incal. That's probably where I got it from. That's probably Sorry. where I originally – and now I feel like I'm going to go back and forth just annoying everybody. <laughs> but he says his own name differently sometimes. So, you know, you just roll with it, what you he do. He spells his own name differently sometimes. <laughs> you say Incal, I'll say Incal. We can all be friends. Liam, what are you going to say for the remainder of this episode? I thought it was the uncle. <laughs> no. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, Liam. Kidding. You being silly. I literally made that up, too, like on the spot. Like, what am I going to say? What crazy thing is going to come out of my mouth? Um, I think I say the in-call. I think that's right. what I've been saying. 
Okay, so we got an in call, an in cow, and an inkle. I like yeah. it. So <laughs> I don't listeners, like I, I won't. I might say in cow. I might say in call. I inkle is just that can't be right. That's I did look up right. one of those like online pronunciation things where they play a little audio clip, and that's yeah. where I decided at that point. I'm like, okay, I'm going with inkle because the robot voice told me so. And if and I learned nothing else from these comic books, is that these robot voices they speak a lot of sense, Liam. So uh, I'm probably going to stick with. Inkle, unless I switch the ink call halfway through, but I'm just letting you know, listeners, that uh, prepare for madness because there's a lot of there's a lot of pronunciation um, <laughs> wonkiness that will occur before we're all said and done. Now, Huzzah. speaking of speaking of wonkiness, right before we started recording, I mentioned to my two co-hosts that it feels like we are you know shifting portions of the universe in favor of Alejandro Jodorowsky. There's been a lot of Jodorowsky news over the past few months since our most recent episode about Jodorowsky's Dune. And we're going to talk about the biggest of those news, of those pieces of news, at the end of this episode. But uh, before we get into all of that, I did want to do a brief follow-up of our most recent episode. Since that episode was released, Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune has been released into cinemas and at home uh, to great critical acclaim. And I want to get, just briefly, uh, each of your takes on that film and its adaptation. Uh, starting with you, Julia, what did you think of Dune? I thought that they treated the subject matter with the most reverence that I can imagine. Hmm. That they really understood to the fans the weight of this, what was happening here. And I feel like that you couldn't really ask for anything more. Because as we talked about in the, in the last episode, like, I'm not a Dune fan. I, I haven't, hmm. I've, I've been trying to read it. I'm on, I'm, I'm reading it. We'll say that. Um, so, but I don't know how, I feel like if I were a Dune fan, that's what I would want. I would just want you to treat it like it's important, which I think this film does. I think all the performances are amazing. I think it looks great. Um, the monochromaticness of it bothered me that sure. it was set in the desert, but like everybody's wearing beige and brown and white. And so it, it felt like you were missing a chance to turn it into something more fantastical uh even though they do you know they because it is that kind of crazy mashup of a world that's normal and a world that's very science fiction altogether mm -hmm. um so for me i felt like i wanted a little bit more uh sparkle to it but that didn't seem to be the point of this film which is fine i've been looking over the last couple of days uh thanks to some of the uh, links that you shared with me julia over some of the proposed artwork for Jodorowsky's Dune. And I, I, whatever you might say about the potential adaptation that Jodorowsky was going to do, it was certainly going to be a lot more colorful than mm -hmm. the Danny Villeneuve version, uh, maybe for better or for worse, depending on your perspective. Uh, and Liam, I guess the, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. let me just say, I, I guess just thinking about Jodorowsky's Dune and how how passionate it would be and how like with all, like thrusting on all, you know, firing all thrusters kind of thing, and and this uh, this dune didn't I didn't feel that kind of passion about it and maybe that's what I was missing in my brain. I do know that in interviews, uh, Villeneuve was very careful to say that he made what I think he would consider a very self indulgent movie for himself in the sense that he was trying to make the dune that he wanted to see more than he cared about what audiences would necessarily want to see and I think that that as as a passion project through his lens. 
then I think he was very successful with that. And especially considering that we are, have only gotten half the story at this point. And it does look, thankfully, like we're going to get this second half, though I say that without <laughs> a certainty that that will come to pass. I mean, it does; it has been announced, but we'll we'll see what the future holds. We'll, uh, we'll certainly return to it, I'm sure, once it does get released, if we're still doing Jodowowski episodes in, what, 2025? I guess we'll find out. Liam, as our Dune resident expert, <laughs> as someone who had been steeped in the mythology for a long time, uh, what are your thoughts on this adaptation? Um, let me say, first off, I suspect that it's the best that we could reasonably expect. Hmm. Um, and that visually, I agree with Julia about how monochromatic it is and that I don't know that, I, I think parts of it needed to be that way. I don't know that it all needed to be that way. Um, and, and, and I did kind of wonder about the, the lack of other sort of color palettes at play. Uh, but that didn't completely bum me out. I think from a visual standpoint, I was very much sucked in and, and really cared about it. Um, after the movie was over, though, I couldn't help but mourn all the weird stuff from the book that doesn't mm. make it into the movie. And I think that might be inevitable. Like, like in other words, I think as a book fan there was some part of me that wasn't entirely satisfied, but there's also a part of me as a film fan that isn't necessarily convinced you could do better. Right. Right. Because there's just so much detail and, um, you mean better as a strict adaptation. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That, that like to translate more of this weirdo book, uh, onto the screen, and especially the way the book does, right? Like one thing that we didn't discuss too much, uh, but you know, listeners who haven't read the book might not know is uh, the book spoils its own ending. Uh, it technically doesn't even really spoil its ending. Uh, in in parts, it spoils the events of future books, <laughs> and so um, you know, uh, the book somehow has to maintain the intrigue and the and the and the. Um, tension of all these things which it does more through political machinations um than the idea of a more traditional story where we might actually wonder what's going to happen uh and so the movie it, it does a little bit of that in the visions but those are vague enough that i think viewers who aren't familiar with the book don't know where it's going which i think is a strength as a for a film but it it, it means that um there's less focus on some of the distractions of the book, which I actually find very fun. So mm. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I, there's a small part of me that feels anxious because one of the things I think that's true of uh, Lynch's adaptation, which I actually kind of like, as well as the proposed adaptation by uh, Jodorowsky, is that um, they kind of miss Herbert's point about Paul Atreides and Messiahs in general, right? Right. Uh, and, if anything, and, they go in the opposite direction. With yeah, it. and 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 in fact, some people who saw this Dune have already accused it of being sort of like a, a white messiah thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, the argument against that, of course, is well, if you had read the books, you'd know that like uh, that that's a bad thing. Like that the book is very negative on those tropes. But uh, but it's hard to say where the movie's going to end up. So there's a small part of me that's a little anxious about that into the future. Sure. But I think. So much of this was so well executed, and I thought just visually stunning that I'm excited for the next movie, which maybe isn't a great review of this movie, that it left <laughs> me wanting more, but it's just true. I, I left, and the most overwhelming feeling I had was, God, I hope he gets to make another one. I want to see what the next one's going to be, which, I, you know, that's certainly not a bad thing, but I don't know if it's as 
endorsing as it could be. I don't know. I, I that's sort of what I'm thinking. I mean, I guess maybe in some ways the jury is still out, right? Once there's a second half, once there's a complete story, yeah, that's and true. Maybe that's true. And, and who knows what happens after that as well? Because there's certainly that's more not necessarily true either. Because you look at the Lord of the Rings movies individually, right? Mm-hmm. And you can say, okay, this movie's good, and yes, it leaves me wanting more. But the film itself, as a whole, is mm-hmm. fine by itself. You can sure. judge those individually. You know, Two Towers is a bit of a slog. Mm-hmm. We all agree. But then Return of the King brings it back. And I think that this film. I, I actually me have of the that opposite little... opinion of. That. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'd love. I think the two towers is the best of the whole three. But um, oh, interesting. That's it. It's been I'd, a little while I'd, since I revisited. I'd like to not look at them ever again. <laughs> oh. See, I was going to say that that, that I, I, Dune made me think of it a little bit because you said you know Villeneuve is like oh it's my adaptation of it, and I feel like it's kind of the same with Peter Jackson because you can see his love for the material sure, yes, on the yes, in yes. the film and i feel like you could this was this is what i meant like the reverence of it like he understands yeah. how important it is to do this adaptation yeah but not not enough to put tom bombadil in there right <laughs> <laughs> oh what a that i support that decision so hard come on I, as well me as well <laughs> so, no, some, no other, tom. some other big news in the jodoverse since uh, the last time we recorded uh you know m- much of what we discussed on our episode on jodorowsky's dune was this book that was created this this outline this this uh bible for the creation of Jodorowsky's Dune it was put together in storyboards it was put together with the script all the concept art in this book that was then distributed and has gone on to you know potentially it's, it's certainly according to the documentary inspire a lot of other films directly one of these books was recently put up for auction and uh it was massively successful in terms of its auction. The Bidding War saw the uh, drawings for the unmade film book fetch 100 times the expected price. It ended up selling for 2.7 million pounds. One of these books, uh, I bet Frank is now wishing that he swiped it from Jodorowsky's house while he was there. Here's the question though, who who gets that money? Yeah, I don't, I think it was the owner of the book, right? Because at, at that point, I don't think that you know, when Jodorowsky was distributing it to, or the, the, the group of people, including Jodorowsky, were distributing it to uh, studios, it wasn't with the idea that they would then be returned. I guess that is the own, you know, it was owned by whoever ended up with them at that studio. So it's, uh, it would be interesting to hear the whole story about where it, it came from. In this article from The Guardian, uh, which is what uh, we're referring to here, it mentions that there's there's knowledge of at least two or three other of these books in existence at this time. And there might be up to 20 or 30 of them out there in the world. I imagine a few of them will pop up now that this uh, this one has sold for this amount. Uh, any thoughts on this, Julia? The the uh, the storyboards for Dune out there in the world, someone has them. I don't think he's going to be, or he or she are going to be uh, uh, you know, scanning them and putting them online anytime soon. I feel like this needs to be a heist movie where they yeah. have they have that we somebody has to we have to go after <laughs> the storyboards, but we have to be like Indiana Jones, like we have to return them to Jodorowsky so he can do with them at he what he wishes, and like we have to like like acquire them all to give back to him. That's my heist movie. Ocean's Fourteen is in development. <laughs> <laughs> what says Hollywood better than Jodorowsky? That's exactly right, uh, Liam. One of the interesting things when we talked to uh, Frank Povich, the director of Jodorowsky's Dune. You know, we were all very interested in that book, right? We were asking him about it. He seemed a little nonplussed about the book. He didn't seem to, like, to think that it was that interesting at all because for him, it was the, you know, the full-sized artwork that was great, not these kind of low-quality scans that are in this book. Any thoughts on this uh, this this massive sale of it? I mean, I think the, the fact that 
it's rare is part of the appeal, right? Uh, like, certainly, absolutely. My, I mean, my initial thought is, you guys remember when that, um, when that, uh, that age drug douchebag bought the Wu Tang album that was just absolutely. the one record, mm-hmm. and I, I remember when that happened, I thought. Man, I'd fuck that dude up. Like, I'm not a violent guy, but <laughs> man, I would really like to punch him in the face and take that Wu Tang record for all know? sorts of reasons, not just because of the fact that he got that record. Right, 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 right. But it's like there's there's a sense in which if this if if what we were talking about was actually available for all of us to see, but but this was just a you know what I mean? Like, uh, any of us can go and buy a copy of. Robinson Crusoe, right. but the first edition Robinson Crusoe that has a note in it from the author or whatever book you want to say is worth my speaking of Lord of the Rings, you know, the initial notes on Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien are worth money because of their, you know, so this is like that only it's worse because I can't see it. So not yeah. only is it cool because it's like one of the original ones, but like I've only seen parts of it in a movie. I can't just like go and get the reprint and check it out myself. Yeah. Uh, though, though, though I do have to agree, I would be more stoked to see the bigger art prints. Like, yeah. like even though I love Mobius, the I want to see the more of the spaceship designs. Like, yeah. if I, you know, if I was a rich person and something became available to me that I would buy, I'd be more stoked on some of those, uh, those paintings than I would on on the book, but I would still want to buy the book. Now, even if I was a filthy rich person, would I spend this amount of money? I don't think so. That's crazy. But you know, good. It 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 shows that people care about it. Like like even though I think it kind of sucks that it's like just another thing we don't have access to. I think it's kind of cool that people are interested enough in this thing that they're willing to spend that kind of money. I do like the the surprise factor as well that they were expecting a certain amount of interest and whether it be general interest i mean i think that jodorowsky's dune prompted a lot of this interest i mean certainly so the the documentary i mean and the recent release of the dune film as well probably contributed to it as well but that's just a massive amount of money for what amounts to a you know just production notes on a movie that ended up not being made uh it you were speaking to something that does bother me as well liam which is the idea of wealth allowing someone to have something that they can then lock away and its value is based on the fact that they have it and you don't. And this is where the heist comes in. I mean, I exactly, Julia, I was feeling a little iffy on the idea of it, of the, of us getting together and breaking into this rich person's house and stealing it. But now that we've talked about it for a little while, I feel like we have to do it. It'll be the final episode of (laughs) Jodowowski. Us now, tripping now laser. everything we said is, is evidence. We will be listening to this two years in the future in a prison cell. No, I can fix it. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay, we're good. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, we're good. Listeners, if you just if you just heard us talk about a crime, uh, it it's too late. It's already happened. So <laughs> it's, in our, it's in our private vault. Um, Liam, I did mention at the beginning of this episode that we have had previously, and really it's, at some point in the future we'll probably return to a podcast about Alpha Flight, the Canadian superhero group. And on that uh, podcast, we've talked about our interest in comic books and graphic novels. Both of us, it's sort of been a lifelong pursuit to a certain extent. It's something that we have a lot of enthusiasm for. But I did want to make sure that up front, before we started talking about uh, Jodorowsky's history with comic books and, of course, the Inkle specifically, that we talk about our backgrounds a little bit and where our interests, if, if they even exist, come from. This is our first episode of Jodorowsky not focusing on film, uh, so it's important, I think, for us to at least talk about where our heads are at going into it. This is not the sort of territory, even with 
those uh, that other podcast that I refer to, this isn't the sort of territory that we as a group are used to going over. So I want to start with you, Julia. Do you like comic books? And if you do, uh, where did that interest begin and where is it at the current time? Uh, I honestly have never been much of a comic book kid. So, mm-hmm. um, as I mean, I, I read a lot as a kid, but, you know, novels and stuff. And I, I did some like Betty and Veronica and like that kind of thing. Sure. Of um, and then I've had uh, many boys foist comic books upon me. Um, <laughs> I have read The Watchmen, uh, uh, not The Watchmen. Watchmen. Sorry about that, folks. I know how I wasn't going to say people. No, no, no. I know how comic book folks are. I'm going to correct myself. It's just called Watchmen. I know. Um, and from hell and like, you know, the Sandman and like those kind of things, uh, which are good. They're fine. And I, you know, but there's, I don't, I think I've just covered overwhelmed by there's this entire universe and of, of, of comic books. Like, where do you start? Yeah. You know, absolutely. and then that gets kind of overwhelming. So I think, uh, you know, we we talked about Annabelle Five on one of our previous episodes, and that mm-hmm. was such a cool thing to see because that was like, oh, okay, this is something. It's a writer I know that I like, and I can see where I can see him in it. Um, I guess I shouldn't say that. I, I I do really like Robert Crumb. I should so that if that sure. counts as a comic book, um, absolutely. I really I really love his stuff and his and his weirdness and and perversity. Um, so I I you know get I think this this helps uh, get me into this comic book world where I go, okay, this is something that's a good doorway to get me in because it's written by somebody I already love anyway. Mm. And I'm excited to read it because of that. And it also, it, it kind of does combat one of those concerns. And it's something that I have as well, which is we are reading with, uh, with the Inkle, with before the Inkle, after the Inkle and final Inkle, a, a complete story. In fact, several complete stories that could be read on their own without having to read any of the other pieces. I mean, the follow-ups, you, you really do have to read the original. But if you adjust, if you are a listener who have ju- has just read The Inkle, that's fine. That's a complete experience for you. The rest of the material, it can add to it or maybe even take away from it, depending on your perspective. But you don't have to pursue anymore. And even aside from this material that we're going to be talking about in this episode... These pieces are still pieces of a larger comic book universe, the Jotoverse, which includes other comic books, which we may or may not return to on Jodowowski. We'll talk about that at the end of this podcast. But what it really does is sort of address something that I have a difficulty. Like if you're getting into Spider-Man comics and you start with the 1960s comic books and then, you know, there's you're talking about thousands and thousands of comic books of varying quality over decades and decades and decades. And it's just like, well, where am I supposed to start? Where should I focus my attention? Here, we're focused. (laughs) We're very focused on this very unusual, very unique, and very beloved uh, comic book series that is The Inkle. Liam, we've talked a bit on our other podcast about your interest in comic books, but maybe you can summarize that a little bit as well. You had read a little bit of The Inkle previously, I believe. Yeah, uh, uh, my co-host on Cinepunks, Josh Alvarez, is also a comic nerd. But I think um, compared to me, at least, and maybe you as well, is a lot more steeped in independent comics. In fact, Mm -hmm. I get the feeling that past adolescence, he didn't really mess with superhero books at all. Um, but like got really sort of uh, into all kinds of independent comic books. And so when he became a Yodorowsky fan, uh, finding the comics was just like a, a logical next step. So uh, when we were discussing our love for Holy Mountain, he handed me uh, he, uh, uh, the hard copy of the uh, in-call that he had just 
finished and was like, oh, you should check this out. Uh, but honestly, I never got very far into it. Um, uh, one reason for that, and this is just a nerdy thing. I, I hate that medium informs my feelings so much. Mm -hmm. um, those big, heavy, hard copies of, of graphic novels and comic sure. books, I find them incredibly awkward to read. Just really? Because we could have a discussion because I find reading them digitally incredibly, incredibly oh, hard to read. No, don't get me wrong. Digitally is worse. Uh, I, in <laughs> fact, I have a friend of the show, Adriana Gober, got me a year-long subscription to Marvel uh, Unlimited. Unlimited yeah. And I've had real trouble using it, not because the program is bad it's fine i just really struggle to want to look at things like that on my phone or on my computer it's just mm -hmm. not how i like to read comics i like to read comics ideally in pure comic book form i want a floppy monthly that's my ideal form if i can't get that trade paperback also fine but i have these huge heavy hardcover editions mm -hmm. of some of the hellboy comics I never bust them out. Never, ever, ever. It's I just find them very awkward to hold and to read. And so, um, you know, I had to rush through our digital version for this podcast, and I did not find that the best way to read it. But I think back when I was reading the the it originally, I just it was very awkward for me, and I thought mm -hmm. oh, I'll come back to this later, and I just never really did. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, just quickly, growing up, I was obsessed with the X Men. Uh, I got into the I, I basically was like eight, I think eight or nine, I bought a copy of X-Men at like a drugstore when they used to just have like the rack, you know, the vertical rack. And it just looked crazy. It was a cover of the X-Men in Australia fighting the Reavers. And it just looked like the most insane thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, and that started an obsession that kind of lasted part way through high school. But like, you know, I graduated in like 97, about mid 90s, the X-Men just started to get weird. And then by the time I got to college, I just sort of checked out of superhero comics in general and kind of thought comic books were in my past. I held on to the comics uh, for the most part, but I just didn't really get back into it until after college. I had a friend who was really into independent comics and I had read a little bit of that because my stepdad had a heavy metal subscription nice. and liked some weird stuff. So I had read a few things, some of which was very inappropriate for my age. <laughs> I was just going to uh, say that. I was like, the good thing about heavy metal, you're just going to have big boobs everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, he had a whole collection of, of uh, uh, Milo Manara uh, ah. stuff. So it's just naked, skinny, naked ladies all over the place. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it wasn't just that. He had a lot of stuff like that. But none of that stuff really grabbed <laughs> me. Like, I really thought comics broke down into comics that were normal comics, so they weren't horny, and then horny comics, and that was it. And it wasn't until my friend got me into other independent comics I realized, like, oh, there were other people using the comic form to express themselves who weren't just drawing dicks and blood. Because that's how it felt. You know, I mean, granted, I think that's reductive of heavy metal, too. But a lot of heavy metal is just dicks and blood, which was cool. Sure. But it didn't make me feel like it was a different sort of realm. Uh, and, and, and so it took me a bit. And But then, then I got obsessed again. And now I'm a, not a regular collector because I just don't have money like that. But as much as I can afford to, I like buy monthly. Like I don't even just do trades anymore. I have a few books that I collect monthly. 
Uh, I'm not going to go over my history in any detail. I'll just mention that, like yourself, why? Because <laughs> no, we want to get to the, the the topic of this episode. But I will well, mention that succinctly, succinctly, succinctly. I'll keep it very short. Which is that I had a lot of interest in superhero comics when I was a kid and into my teens, like yourself, Liam. But it was only uh, getting back into them with the work of Alan Moore, uh, you know, Swamp Thing, Watchmen, of course. But also his work at the time that I was getting into it, things like Top Ten, uh, Lost Girls. I mean, I really did didn't really approach comics from the perspective of a worthy art form until that, that, that time period. And that got me really back into things. And I started mm -hmm. to, you know, get into Grant Morrison. And uh, now <laughs> I got into Jodorowsky, finally. Uh, I will say, and this is something that I, I was also talking about before we started recording, I had no experience with the Inkle going into this. I had never read it. I had certainly heard of it, but somehow it had completely passed me by. It's certainly the fact that it was as revered and is as revered as it is, is something that had somehow just washed over me to a great extent. And that's something I want to make very clear as we get into talking about it, is none of the three of us have had much experience with this comic book previously. So if we make errors on, in our interpretations, or if we just make errors generally, I, I hope you'll forgive us. This is meant to be, and this is something I want to re reiterate as well, uh, a, a, a comfortable way to get into the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. And with that in mind, even though we have a lot of experience with uh, many of his films, this is something that uh, we want you to take that journey with us. So if you are an expert on the Incul, please tell us where we get things wrong. But uh, for the most part, this is going to be a lot of hodgepodgey type uh, material regarding the history of Jodorowsky with his comic books, with the work itself, and where we are in current day with the Incul and its upcoming adaptation, which we will get to at the end of this. But before we get into talking about the comic books uh, themselves, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we got here, specifically where Alejandro Jodorowsky's interest in comics began. Now, much of the info we're about to talk about uh, comes from Daniel Gonzalez Duena's uh, foreword for the collection of Jodorowsky's Panic Fables comics called the Panic Fables Mystic Teachings and Initiatory Tales. So Jodorowsky, uh, in 1964 in Mexico, he started a magazine devoted to science fiction called Crononata. Uh, and this was, I guess, very popular at the time, one of the first science fiction magazines that were available in Mexico. And in 1966, this is something that you already referred to, Julia, uh, he published the six legendary issues of Annabelle 5, the first Mexican science fiction comic. It's interesting to think, you know, we don't really, we haven't really talked a lot about his comic work so far, but his influence on the history of comics started as far back in 1966, which is pretty incredible to yeah. think about. Uh, Annabelle 5 is described as such. It's very Jodorowsky sounding. The European Defense Organization, the EDO, is entrusted with protecting the Earth from cosmic terrorists bent on the destruction of humanity. Their key weapon? A sex-obsessed secret agent by the name of Annabelle 5. As Annabelle and the rest of EDO's eclectic team battle evil dictators, nymphet clones, and a mysterious criminal syndicate, things turn inevitably and irrevocably delirious and erotic. Animal 5 would be revised in 1990 with uh, new artwork by uh, George Bess. Uh, he also, uh, as I mentioned already, uh, wrote and, and illustrated uh, The Panic Fables, which appeared in Mexican newspapers uh, between 1967 and 1973. These are 284 comic strips. Both Animal 5 and uh, The Panic Fables have been uh, collected and are available. Uh, and it is something that we may return to in the future. In 1977, Jodorowsky returned to Mexico after living abroad for a number of years. This would have been right in the midst, or I guess maybe right after the failure of Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, he directed a play. He was the editor of a magazine called Sucesos, 
uh, sorry, Sucesos Novero, uh, which had published uh, lectures by Jodorowsky previously and had published the book of El Topo, which we actually referred to in our El Topo episodes. So these pieces together, starting a, a science fiction magazine in the mid-60s, if you're, by the way, if you're wondering where his interest in science fiction uh, started, it, it obviously goes way back. Science fiction in the, in the 60s, Annabelle 5, Panic Fables, his interest in comic books was basically always there and had been developing well into his film career. Uh, so after his fourth film, Tusk, which we have not covered yet, so that's something to note as well, we have been going chronologically through his career. We're jumping ahead a little bit, uh, because, particularly because the Incul takes up so much time going forward, but we will return to Tusk after this episode. So after his fourth film, he uh, began the Incul uh, in, uh, in the early 1980s with Jean Giraud, a.k.a. Mobius, in the pages of Metal Hurlant, a.k.a. Heavy Metal, Liam's favorite childhood comic book. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, Metal Hurlant, a.k.a. Uh, heavy Metal, though it translates directly to Howling Metal, that was a comic book started in 1974. And Jean Giraud, uh, Mobius, was actually one of the founding creators of Heavy Metal, which is why a lot of his work uh, is in it. Um, the, the, the collection of people who started that were Les Humanoid Associés, uh, the United Humanoids, and Humanoids would be the publishing company that would publish all of the future heavy metal work as well as all the comics in the Jodoverse. So all these pieces fitting together at this point. Uh, so now we get to the in-call. Uh, and of course, we have talked about Mobius to some extent on our episode on Dune. Uh, this is a podcast about Jodorowsky, but it's hard to disconnect the two, especially on their collaboration on the Incul, simply because the, the artwork is such a huge part of it. Mobius is considered one of the greatest comic book artists of all time. He has been incredibly influential to artists as diverse as Fellini, Stan Lee, Miyazaki. Uh, he's just considered one of the great comic books, in, not in just any genre in particular, just one of the great artists of our time. He passed away, sadly, in the year 2012, actually before Final Incul was finished. But we'll talk about his contributions to the whole series in just a little bit. Jodorowsky and Mobius, the Incal was not their first collaboration outside of Dune. They actually collaborated, their first comic book was called The Eyes of the Cat from 1979. So they had already worked together in several different forms. They obviously were very comfortable with each other. And at some point, Jodorowsky came up with the idea for the Incal. And in a very Jodorowsky-esque fashion, that came in a dream. Uh, this is from The Spiritual Journey of Alejandro Jodorowsky from 2005. I dreamed I was flying in intergalactic space, a cosmic being formed by two superimposed pyramids, one black, the other white, was calling me. I moved toward it and found myself submerged in the center. We exploded, and that's how my subconscious mind introduced me to the Inkle. <laughs> so Jodorowsky, it's so good. It's perfect, right? Of course it would be perfect. Uh, there was an article just uh, recently on The Hollywood Reporter, Alejandro Jodorowsky reflects on the Inkle 40 years later. A very great interview. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But just uh, referring to one question that's asked here. They asked him, do you remember starting to work on the project? He says, when I made the Inkle here in France, uh, the comic was regarded a little more artistically than the, in the United States. They were in bigger editions or printed on nice paper. Liam would hate that, of course. But they were always a continued storyline. You have a hero like Superman or Spider-Man. And at that time, you were always continuing to make the story. It is without end. Then I decided I wanted to make a complete novel. I will make a start, an end, and all this. Only six books. Only that one book every year. Then I can tell any story, not a continuation all the time. I thought one day I will have the Incal in only one volume, like a real novel. The years pass, and now people start to understand the Incal is one complete story. That made me happy. My son is growing. He's an adult now. I love how he threw in the fact that his son is basically aged along with the Incal. So... 
that brings us to talking about the book itself. But since I went on for just a long time then going through that history, I just wanted to ask both of you just a couple of questions before we take a break and before we start talking about the comic outright. Do either of you have interest in looking at these other parts of the Jotoverse at some point, whether it be these earlier comics like Animal 5 or the Panic Fables, whether it be his other work with Mobius, his work going forward, we, we obviously are going to eventually take a look at the second part of the Sons of El Topo. Uh, is this something that either of you have interest in, starting with you, Julia? I plan to do it all, right? Nice. Are I we going to do it all? Let's do I, it fucking all, man. I love, we already talked. I we already talked about Animal 5. Like, we've already started. Like, let's, let's just keep going. I mean, like, the Panic Fables, we can't really i mean we could talk about them as like artwork but you can't it's not it's you know it's a it's just like a a daily comic strip like there's not any sort of through line or anything but they're beautiful and i feel like you can see him in that even then which is great so i'm on board for everything let's do it liam we have uh julia's side (laughs) your thoughts on covering every comic book that jodorowsky has ever been a part of uh, as long as we have, as long as I'm given time to read them, um, I don't know why I wouldn't like. I'm already mm-hmm. planning to read the Meta Bar- I mean, honestly, I wanted to read the Meta Barons before we recorded today, even though it wasn't what we were talking about. I just wanted I do to have get to say after I was finished the end call, I was like, I got to read the Meta Barons. Everyone yeah. I've been listening to say that it's just as good, if not better. Well, and here's the deal with me, Doug. Uh, the other bit of info I was going to drop. It's the only other thing I've read. Uh, already, because I have a few issues of Metal Herland that like have <laughs> bits from the Meta Barons in it. In, in fact, when I was uh, when I was introduced to the Ink Call by our friend Josh, and there's a character in it named the Meta Baron, I was like, "What's this about?" Because I didn't realize that the Meta Barons were Yodorowsky. I was familiar with them as a project without knowing he's the one who created it. It's just. One of the storylines in in Metal Herland that I had, uh, and and so like I you know it's only a few editions like I don't know a lot about the story, but it's like one of the few things that I remember, and so I'm like oh I'm kind of familiar with that I'd like to read that, uh, and you know I wasn't sure how much further the uh, Yodo verse went, so um, you know assuming we're not committing to fifty years of our life, then like yeah I'd love to I don't see why not. <laughs> I mean, you are talking to a girl who just spent the last four years of her life reading every Stephen King novel and short story collection. So I go hard. I just want to let you know. I feel that. I feel that. Hey, you're talking, (laughs) Julie, you're talking to two guys who have a blood oath to watch the life and work of of actor Eric Roberts, right, Liam? Oh, God, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) We we are devoted individuals, if nothing else. Uh, Just to give everyone a little idea of how the rest of this episode will go, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about The Inkle, uh, the entire graphic novel that was uh, created between 1980 and 1988. Uh, This comic is available in many forms. It's actually a new collected form. I believe it's coming out in early 2022, but it's available very easily at this time. We're then going to follow that up with uh, Before the Inkle. Uh, we're also going to talk about the one issue of After the Inkle. We'll explain what all of these things are as well, and then we're going to finish up with Final Inkle. I do think that we're going to be spending most of our time on the original graphic novel, The Inkle. It's not that we're going to give short shrift to the other work. It's just that uh, I feel like in terms of understanding the series, it's really the core of it. Maybe, uh, maybe my collaborators here will disagree, and we can talk about that as well. But for now, let us take a break. When we return, The Inkle. I don't know why you say to me, well, what you will do? You will die. <laughs> no, I will not die. For me to fail is only to change the way. If we don't do that, 
the Dune we was doing is the roots are Dune of Herbert, but this Dune is us, is the optical, is a creation, and then I will use everything I put in Dune to make comics. I say to my why we don't do a comic? Yeah, I start to dictate the Inkal. The Inkal follows the story of John DeFool, a Class R private detective from City Shaft that one day comes into contact with a luminous Inkal, a mysterious object that grants him powers and which different factions such as the Bergs and the Techno Technos are after. The Inkal guides John and his pet depot first to the center of the planet and then to distant worlds in outer space, meeting different companions along the way. He eventually returns home, where all started, to face the darkness, a metaphysical being threatening the political stability of the Empire and the universe itself. That is from the Jodiverse uh, wiki uh, page at jodiverse.fandom.com slash wiki. Uh, a great resource for a lot of the information that we're going to be talking about today. And that is a summary of the book, The Inkle, uh, published originally as six-issue graphic novel, uh, part of the Inkle saga, and served as the basis for the Jodiverse, which we're going to get into as we continue here today. It was originally released as Un Aventure de Jean de Foule, a Jean de Foule adventure, uh, in the science fiction and horror French magazine Metal Herlant, as we've already mentioned, published between 1981 and 1988, written by Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by Mobius, um, with a variety of colorists on this. And that's kind of be... That's going to be notable as well when we talk about the art in these books. The first uh, issue was colored by Yves Chalon, the second, third, and fourth by his wife, Isabelle Beaumonet-Jonet, and the fifth and sixth by Zoran Janjitov. Uh, we are going to talk about all things the Incal as we go forward, our favorite characters, our favorite moments. Uh, the characters, by the way, I really glossed over them <laughs> in that summary. John DeFool is going to be the main character. Depot is his uh, loyal and good-hearted concrete seagull. We have Enema and Tanita, the two sisters charged with guarding the light and dark Inkles. We have the Meta Baron, who we have referred to already, uh, maybe my favorite character, a bounty hunter, mercenary, and fighter ace. Uh, we have Saloon, the uh, the the son uh, of who we think the son. <laughs> We're getting into spoiler territory. Uh, a child, we should say, the adopted child of the Meta Baron. Uh, and we have Kill Wolfhead, a wolf-headed uh, anthropomorphic wolf mercenary uh, in uh, Tanita's employ. We're going to get into all of this, but before we get into the details, I want to get your general overall feelings, knowing that neither of you had read it before, and starting with you, Julia, what did you think of the in-call? I thought it was rad, and I think <laughs> that it, um, <laughs> especially after after having read Annabelle 5, I was like, oh, okay, it's the kind of in the same vein, right? You have this kind of hyper-sexualized space adventure, and, you know, and it's it, this was the same felt very similar to me. So I, I think it was cool that I had read that first because like, oh, okay, I get the where this where this is coming from. Um, I feel like this was, especially when I read uh, like Alan Moore stuff, like I felt a little bit over in over my head. Sure. I'm like, oh, this comic's really dense and it's really made for people who really love comics. And there's probably a lot of things I'm not quite getting, but I'm doing my best. And it's, you know, it's so incredibly dense and so much to look at. Um, I think it was, it was really overwhelming because uh, there's so many people, you know, so many characters and so many plot lines and so many intrigues and like, trying to remember all of the different tech terms he's using and everything um, <laughs> was a lot, right? But I was like, okay, but I'm, you know, I got, I thought I didn't get it. Of course I got it, but it's just something that I felt like took a lot of effort, not effort, 
concentration. Is that the right word? Yeah, I think uh, concentration. <laughs> I mean, effort. Tate, for me, it was effort as well when I was reading. Absolutely. Sometimes I was effort like, makes it sound like it's not fun, though. And I think I think when you're first starting out, especially there's a level of effort involved because you you're because it's unfamiliar territory. I think it was for all of us, and you start to wonder, it's like. Is it going to ease into a story that I'm going to be able to follow? And that was my biggest concern when I started reading it. And at one point, I trusted. I should have done it from the beginning, but I started to trust. I'm going to be able to follow this. And you know what? I did. It's not actually that hard to follow the plot. Okay. It's the ideas that get a little bit more, uh, not difficult, but like you said, take a little bit more concentration. But you liked it. You thought it was. I rad. did. I did. <laughs> I did. I, that was. That, it was rad. There's. There's my Julia Marquesi quote. You can pull <laughs> quote that on the back of the end cow. Julia Marquesi. This is rad. <laughs> I think I can say pretty confidently, uh, re- listeners to this podcast, even uh, if you have not checked out uh, the Incul, if you do uh, read it right now. Whether you like it or not, you'll probably think it's pretty fucking rad. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Liam O'Donnell, did you think it was rad? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> there was there was something about it that felt there's there's a because it's Mobius and because of uh, who Yodorowsky is, there's something about it that will feel very familiar to anyone who's read more than a few uh, Metal Hurlin issues. Like, yes, yeah, there's just there's just a something about it where I'm like, OK, I kind of get where I'm at. And one of the things that Yodorowsky brings that I think is different than some of the other people I've read is it not just a techno babble but like something that feels almost utterly ridiculous like he's just like you know the idea that what they do is techno techno science or that <laughs> everything bad is is paleo hell you know like just these interesting combinations of things that i don't even know what they're supposed to mean sometimes there's just there's something about that that at first is very off-putting but after a while i get into the vibe of it and i'm like yeah paleo hell sure bio shit i'm right there with you like it just starts to become i don't know he 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 has a way of repeating those things enough that they start to like resonate a little bit Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I, I I thought the art was beautiful. Uh, I, it, you know, I've had a feeling about uh, uh, Mobius as an artist for a while, but this was like the longest continuous thing I've read that he has drawn, and I realized that I, he's one of the few artists I can think of that I'm almost more entranced with his backgrounds than I am with his foregrounds. You know what sure. I mean? Mm-hmm. That like. I'm more interested when he's showing us the whole city than I am when he's showing us a close up of a character. Right. And that's not true of a lot of, of of many, many other artists and comic books I read. I feel the exact opposite. And so that part was interesting to me to see like, man, when he's really given me the scope and the little details, like I'm just blown away you know sure, i mean like that opening panel of him falling yeah. is mm-hmm. fucking epic yeah and so um uh and then you know the the the, uh, the thing i was struck by though is that how um you know it's pretty clear from the from maybe not the very beginning but pretty quickly into it that there's a lot of analogy going on here that there's more meaning sure uh, which i mean mm-hmm. anyone who's reading this who's familiar with yodorowsky wouldn't be surprised and even like the idea that our main character john defool i'm thinking of the tarot card of the fool like mm-hmm. all that stuff is sort of going on in my brain but as it goes forward it becomes more and more that until it starts to feel like 
the analogous elements are more the plot than the than the plot is at a certain point. Certainly, the final book it, it very much feels like. Yeah, yeah. And, and it starts and, to dip into what I would call holy mountain territory at that point. <laughs> right, and, and and on one hand that felt very familiar. On the other hand, I kind of wanted, in some ways, I wanted the nitty. I I think I found myself where I wish that there was more of that at the beginning. But then that wouldn't make sense. It would have been too soon. <laughs> it but does I, seem like the kind of stuff you liked, like b- before the Inkle, is almost all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But then I, yeah, and then I kind of wanted more grittiness later on. That was like the 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 sort of grotesquerie of the city. Mm. Not that it entirely fades away, but after a while, it's not as interesting as like what's going on with the Inkle, and you know. Um, uh, but it, it, you know, I I don't know. I guess the thing that I'm really trying to reach for that I'm still unsure of, as of this recording, and and probably will be for a while, is I don't have much of a grab on the larger meanings. Like mm. like I have a general idea, but unlike with the Holy Mountain, that I've watched it enough times that I have some really strong feelings about what's going on there. Uh, on my first reading of this, I'm very compelled. But like if you were, if someone was like, well, I've always thought that part of what's going on with this aspect is this larger philosophical idea, I would just be like, cool, that sounds cool. Like I I don't have a read on that yet, which is like, um, I think good. Uh, it, it means I'm going to come back to it and think about it more. But it leaves me feeling a little like, I don't know, uneven. I I don't have yeah. a take. I I more of just responding to like it was. It was fun. There were parts of it that made me uncomfortable, but it was very enjoyable and very beautiful. And I could tell that there was a lot of thought going into it, but I don't have any insight <laughs> on it whatsoever. And and, 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 and and again, that's not a criticism. It's just like my take after that first read was like, whew, okay. And, you know, for the listeners, you know, we're talking about three different things. So I'm taking in each one. And I, I think you can make an argument that like, each of these, even though they rely on each other, he has somewhat different things on his mind. So, yes. like, it's yeah, not because you're like, talking about a forty year period yeah. in which these are written. Absolutely, yeah. it's not like you finish uh, the final in call and you're like, oh, well, that puts a that puts a period on that. There you go. It's <laughs> now like, I get it. <laughs> no, no, that's not how it works at all. I think it's important to make very clear that if you are not that interested in the spiritual side of these books, then certainly it's going to be confusing and maybe frustrating at times to read them, but it is not required. That at its core, these are science fiction stories, almost like kind of noirish science fiction stories that take place in this futuristic, satirical world that has a lot of humor in it. And that's something that I want to really make sure that we make clear. This is funnier. These works are much funnier than anything that we've really encountered so far in Jodorowsky's career, there's a lot of satirical elements towards uh, media and television and really and war and, and people with who take up causes and I mean, all sorts of things. Right. And, and it's all in this massive kind of stew of this story that's about a search for spiritual enlightenment, just like really all the Jodorowsky stuff that we've talked about to one extent or another. And eventually uh, and this story at first is about these two warring groups all searching after the Inkle, this 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 uh, fantastical element, this uh, fantastical uh, thing that, that John DeFool is in possession of that everyone is searching for. Uh, and when we get to the end of this story, 
that spiritual enlightenment enlightenment is reached and it's reached in a very Jodorowskian way. And in a way, like I said, that it does kind of uh, bring to mind elements of the Holy Mountain. And at the end, I have to say that I felt like I had been through an experience that had a beginning and middle and end to it. And I felt it was extremely satisfying. I had a very good time reading the Incult. And like yourself, Liam, I'm not going to pretend that I grasped all of it. I mentioned before on Jodorowsky that my knowledge of the tarot was extremely limited. And as as we go through the work of Jodorowsky, I feel more and more like that is a failing that is meaning that I'm not getting the full picture of a lot of what we're uh, discussing here. But even in, in the little bits of Jodorowsky interviews that we've taken in up to this point on the podcast, we are just never going to know all the references that he's pulling from because it's his life and we can't pretend to know everything that's going on in his head. I want to experience it on face value. And I will say that uh, even only grasping maybe 10% of what it is necessarily trying to say, I think the Incal is something that I'm going to be revisiting many, many times in the future. I really was overwhelmed with it. It is at some points like pure unfiltered Jodorowsky in that there's so that's many ideas mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's uncut, right? It's it yeah. feels like without the uh, limitations of budget, without the yes. limitations of of a producer, he's like, well, I'm going to put every idea I have into this. And when you have a person like Jodorowsky doing something like that, it means every page is packed. And it's, it's good that he has collaborated with some of the finest artists on earth, including Mobius uh, and others who we'll get into in just a moment. Because who else could bring that brain to some sort of visual life? Even Jodorowsky himself struggled with it when, with, with, with filmmaking, but here he has no such limitations. And uh, you want to talk about dense. This might be one of the densest pieces of art that you could ever experience. And I know that's, I a, that's, a, that, that's a... That's what yeah, I really please. liked about it, mm -hmm. that it felt so him. That, you yes. know, that, that if you took all of the, you know, because I feel like so much of his life is, is fighting for money. And if you take that fight away and you can make anything you want, then this is what that is. And I go, yes, give me all the Jodorowsky. And it, it feels like a different side of him in some ways than, than, than you see in his films, because he does feel a bit unrestrained, right? Where it is kind of like everything's out on the table. But I think that that makes it even more, you know, like for me, like crank him up to a thousand, man. I'll yeah. take it all. Shove it right in my brain. This might be the most like distilled version of him that we have encountered so far. And if, if this is what that is, all I can say is give me more. And you can <laughs> see why he would be drawn to this art form, an art form that, that, that in a lot of ways is, is continues to be derided, even if it now is the uh, the source material for, you know, billion dollar franchises, you know, comics is something that are an art form that is very controversial in a lot of different ways and, and derided by many, but for him, it was an opportunity to tell the stories he wanted to tell with as little oversee uh, as possible. And I think that that is what the incult is more than anything else. It is uh, the story that he wanted to tell and, you know, working in, in a collaboration form with someone who can bring his mental energy into some sort of physical form. Now, we have, of course, already covered a lot of Jodorowsky's work up to this point. Um, what was surprising about reading the Inkle. What was different from what we've encountered so far? I mean, we've already mentioned, there's lots of ideas on display here. Going back to you for a second, Liam, knowing that you had certain expectations going in, even having read some of it before, what did you come out of it most surprised by? That's a interesting question. I'm trying to think. Um, well, I will say uh, the, the Meta Baron character was a surprise because what I've seen from comics is a lot more like uh, 
tech focused, you know, and darker. Mm -hmm. And so like this first version of the Meta Baron looks more like like a hip biker dude, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, and so it wasn't quite the same sort of imposing figure. Uh, but I think on a larger level, I don't know. It's, it's uh, it, at least in this first book, um, there's a there's a way in which uh, it, it, there's kind of a crossing of themes of good and evil. Sure, and, absolutely. And, and there and you know, in a way, there's sort of a suggestion that that's kind of the, the ink call is the combination of light and dark into something beyond that. Well, of course, there's you know? two ink calls, right? There's the light ink call, and right, the dark, right, one, and right? so absolutely. but then they come when they combine. And they become, you know, this sort of uh, presence that is speaking to them through the ship. Um, I, I don't know. There, I, I just I wasn't sure where we were going with it, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of that was a big surprise. And then the the end, you know, spoilers, y'all. But there's a <laughs> bunch of splash pages at the end that just are unbelievable. Just yes. just breathtaking. And I. Did not see any of that coming. I was just sort of like, "Where are we going with this? I don't know what's happening." Uh, and and I love that. That was actually as much as I was a little overwhelmed with it, and I don't know what to think about it per se. Um, just the experience of reading it was like constantly like, "What is happening?" and and really appreciating that and and the ways that constantly, not just in this book but in some of the other books, characters keep. The, there keeps being a use for characters that you think might be evil. Like you think yeah, like, oh, I'm that's very glad that you brought that up. Yeah, Absolutely. That's one of the villains. And then, oh, no, no, I guess not. I guess they're useful or something. You know? <laughs> but it, I mean, there is a sympathy for the devil in this, right? Where sure. it very much is a case where a character is introduced as being absolutely without any positive qualities whatsoever. And then slowly that's chipped away and humanized and oh, humanized. Well, they're given dimension to them. And if they they might not necessarily become good guys, but they become useful. Like you said, they become more than the sum of their parts. It's it's a repeated theme throughout all of the books. One of the things I most liked about Mobius's art is something that you refer to, Liam, which is sometimes you'll get it like the camera, let's say, will pull out and you'll get these unbelievably huge sequences, right? Where you see these gigantic pieces of machinery or like the giant egg and things like that. You just see this and then you'll see the characters. There's these little tiny specks on the screen. But other times it'll take a completely different approach. And the thing that I was most surprised by was the character of Depot, this concrete oh. seagull, this character. Yeah, right. One of yeah. my favorite in the entire uh, series, which when they focus on this character, suddenly the arc is very cartoonish. It gets very kind of almost Disney-ish in the way that he is described when other things are played out very, you know, very technical, right? It's very uh, lots of gears and a lot of metal parts and things like that. And you also have this very kind of organic cartoonish vision the mixing of these styles and the fact that they all work together is one of the things that i was very impressed by and it really gave me a different appreciation for mobius as a man who isn't just suited for a certain kind of art he really can do it all julia how about yourself was there anything that surprised you about reading the Inkle? uh debo as well uh who also <laughs> you know who is who is one of my very favorite characters maybe my favorite character in the in the and the thing that was surprising to me about it is that it's a, it felt very un to give him like a cutesy animal companion. Absolutely. Right? Because, 
every story he tells is like the lone protagonist going through this thing, this battle on his own. And now you have somebody, and it's great for comic relief, right? And you know, you do have you now that you know that John DeFool is, even though he's kind of heartless, he's also has this animal that he really loves. So you give this kind of background of his story through that character, which is cool. Um, but it, it gave it a levity that I really enjoyed. And I felt mm-hmm. like that maybe uh, added to it that it wasn't so serious with just this, you know, because it, it could have been, it would have been so easy to just make him like a film noir kind of detective, right? Who's just very mm-hmm. straight faced and going through it very seriously. And they don't do that. And they, you know, he shies away from it and gives him this comic relief kind of character who pukes all the goddamn time, which I kind <laughs> of love about him. I was like, why is he puking? I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> I- I like that how much that Jodorowsky snubs his nose at the idea of character development, specifically with the John DeFool character, because he's continuously learning and then unlearning things. And then he, <laughs> it, you know, he, there, there are, we're giving away some elements, but in the future books, like his memory is wiped. He falls in love. He loses that in, from his memory. He is a different form of himself. It's it. Trying to get a read on him as a character of consistency is a, well, a fool's errand. Uh, <laughs> but the only other thing that I really want to mention that surprised me about this, uh, the, really the whole series, is how much Jodorowsky seems interested in action. And I know that sounds a little weird. It's just that... No, I agree. Like, big battle sequences. Like, I wouldn't huge, expect that from him. Absolutely. Huge battle sequences, right? In space, between, between spaceships, but also between people and lots of gunfighting and things like that. He obviously, when he was making this, wasn't just focused on the spiritual or the intellectual aspects of things, but also was very concerned about making something that was very visual and entertaining. And I think that is a testament to him as a creator that, you know, he coming off of the Holy Mountain, people would have expected some sort of kind of uh, psychotronic mind bending thing. But a lot of this is very hands-on it's very kind of approachable and like i said there's a lot of humor as well which uh which i i i expected to a certain extent but not to the level that's actually in here now we're not going to summarize the plot of the inkle we couldn't it would literally take us hours just to go through it point by point but i do want to ask the both of you if there were any particular story moments that you particularly enjoyed um and and also in the meantime We've already talked about some of the characters, but maybe character moments as well. Starting with you, Julia, what are some of your favorite moments from the Incul? I think I just liked learning everybody's backstory. You know, yeah. to me, uh, as a as a moviegoer and as a reader, the characters are the most interesting thing. And you know, you can put them in situations that are exciting or or scary or whatever, but it's going the thing that you're excited about is that those characters. So you know, you're introduced to a lot of characters in this in this book and so and and they just come on and you're like i don't you know oh it's a pretty lady i don't know what her deal is and like but they will teach you know what once you get to know what everybody's you know understand what their motivations are it becomes you know and and also to have it go into this very holy mountain like seven companions bit (laughs) right where i'm like oh okay got it and you know and i i think you know it's cool you have uh, the the perfect andro- androgyny you know emperor and then sure. you also have saloon who is supposed to be androgynous and or hermaphroditic you're not really sure as well absolutely but they're the most powerful people in the universe like they're there to save the universe and like i think that's cool that he's connecting you know that everybody has to be whole by embracing both both masculine and feminine um which i think is a cool thing to to play with in, in here and i just like his learning about the universe and sorry the jodoverse learning about this jodoverse and 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 the society that he creates and how 
fucking brutal he is about mm-hmm. what society is because it really just you know the, the the city they live in is this terrible dystopia where it's just everybody's brought down to their base instincts right so they're just everybody's taking drugs everybody's having sex everybody's just being ployed by media and government and and and, and it, it, it's very idiocracy in a way where you just mm-hmm. have these people who are just there being fed their base instincts and they're happy with that so that kind of setting for it are is already dystopian and terrible but then you add you know, monsters and spaceships and, you know, everything else on top of it. So it's just like layers and layers and layers of different <laughs> things happening in this universe. It's like, you have to go so far in. It's so fascinating to me that what we discover as it goes along is something that seems a little sentimental for what we've seen from Jodorowsky so far. Maybe I'm, I'm selling him a little short, but just the idea that the reason that this society, this, this entire planet uh, has fallen into such disrepair and in such kind of um, Sodom and Gomorrah-esque activities is because they don't have love in their lives. And this is, in a lot of ways, this novel is about the search for love and the bringing of love back to a community. And I know that seems like a simplistic idea, but I mean, there is like an Adam and Eve aspect to it. There's a it, there's references to kind of Christian mythology in, in certainly in the second book in particular. Uh, but there's all these kind of different religious influences but at its core, it's really about people kind of getting into touch with themselves and their own emotions and finding love in their lives, which I thought was kind of a very sweet message, even if there is a lot of cynicism at the core of what we're seeing here. I do want to mention one moment in particular that I really love from the Inkle, and it actually comes from the later part, Liam, a part that I, I know that you didn't feel as attached to, but it's when these characters you know, that we've spent a lot of time with and have a lot of conflicts within uh, among each other. In fact, they've sort of been paired off at this point. That before that they're able to travel through this this passage of light, they need to forgive each other. They need to basically hash out all the differences that they have and and find some sort of emotional maturity amongst themselves before they can pass through it. And I really love that. And it felt very much like something from the Holy Mountain, right? Where characters have to kind of cast off parts of themselves, cast off some of their emotional baggage before they're able to kind of move on to the next stage of their adventure. And I really like that. And I and I have to say that uh, I really, I thought I was going to feel that disconnect that, that you were mentioning, Liam, but I really do like the third book, uh, sorry, not the third book, the final segment of this, I should say, um, quite a bit, maybe most of all, mostly because I had let go of, of this kind of need to understand at that point, and I was really just going along with a lot of the imagery and the story that we were getting. But uh, moving that over now over to you, Liam, uh, any favorite moments from the story as a whole? I didn't say that I was disconnected from the last part. You just said that you didn't understand it as much as, or you didn't feel you had an interpretation of it as much as the rest of Yeah, it. that's not a disconnect at all. Okay, all right. Yeah, no, you're, you're putting words in my mouth, and it's pretty fucked up. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Tell, tell me no, about this part that you feel for, particularly for, connected to. <laughs> for me, for me, my lack of interpretation is not like less enjoyable. It's just because there is so much uh, uh, metaphor and analogy going on in his films. I usually have a take on the philosophy they are in, and sure. with this one, I I do think like the basic message is that there the 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 this lack of love. Um, that humanity has somehow progressed, well, really regressed into this place where um, 
everyone is stratified. Everything is about abuse and what they can get. Uh, somehow, you know, we, we barely have a society, but we still have TV and Coca-Cola, sure. you know? Um, Coca Loco, thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> you and gotta we, use the Jota the Jota verse one. Yeah, it's Nozla it's no, it's Nozla in the Stephen King verse just. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um and you know, and, and and the idea that uh that uh formalized religion and science have become one thing. Right. You know, that the techno techno uh, science is basically a religious group that has been invaded by the outer darkness. You know, like the the anti life, the force for death and destruction is like what they're actually devoted to in all of their science, which is very religious and culty of them. Like, sure. like there's there's a lot of those elements. So I, I kind of want to have a read on them. Um, but that that uh, idea was one of my favorites. Even like the weird egg over his head and, and then the mm-hmm. idea that they had deployed these eggs to eat the suns, to create the darkness. Like that whole thing I really liked. Um, I, I, I got to say like one of the things that I love as well is not just the holy mountain aspect of the seven together, but um, there's a lot in there where, I mean, we get the whole John DeFool thing. Like John is both the focus and the one who like is always complaining and can't mm-hmm. seem to like accomplish anything without the help of other people. But even this group, this powerful group that the uh, in call has brought together, they just keep finding allies at times, mm-hmm. the same way that they find barriers, you know? So when they're, working with uh the rebels on the water planet and then they're deploying the what did they call the medusas you know the the space jellyfish like (laughs) all of those things where it's like we found resources and we're deploying them to help change this thing there's just something kind of triumphant about each of those moments you know even if it even if in the end it turns out that that doesn't work out entirely there's something about the teamwork. It it it. There's lots. Well, you of, know what it is. It's a ragtag bunch of right, people coming right. to save the universe. We right, love yeah. those. Right. It's it's very much. It very much has that feel. And uh, to the extent that I I kept thinking about how, I wonder how many folks, uh, if that's just a theme that we always had or or what because it it felt. Like kind of epic. Like I could hear the epic music of mm-hmm. in the movie of these folks coming together. So there's just something about even though he does it a few different times and different ways in the different books, it each time got me like super stoked. Like, yeah, all right, like okay, we're gonna combine forces and make this thing happen. I I do have to say that there were moments, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but while I was reading it, where they would defeat like a big bad guy, and then the next sequence would be like. Well, that he wasn't really the big bad guy. There's this guy who's even badder and bigger, and that happened like three or four times throughout the movie, uh, through the movie, the the graphic novel, where it's just like the scope is getting bigger and bigger to the point where it encompasses like the entire universe. And I I really love that, but it also felt like like you could see why John DeFool at that point was so frustrated. He just wants a moment to re- relax and smoke his drugs and sleep with a prostitute because he is risking his life in various uh, kind of, of uh, larger scale ways again and again and again. And that is something I want to talk about now, which is John DeFool as a character. He is the center of this. He is the fool, but he's also the character that we as the reader is most supposed to connect with. And he is learning things as we learn them. But as you just mentioned, Liam, he's also uh, very resistant to the idea of learning. 
he really rejects this idea of being a hero. Uh, he rejects the, the even the potential of enlightenment. Every he basically is be you know I think uh, Mobius even said of Defoul at one point the idea that he's someone who's like being given the truth to his eyes and he just wants to shut it out. He does not want to be part of this whatsoever. He is the most resisted hero <laughs> that you may ever encounter in such an epic tale. Uh, sticking with you for a second, Liam, your thoughts, John DeFool as a character, do you like him as a protagonist? Is he someone that you connect with? Is it just his ponytail that you don't care for? <laughs> oh, I definitely hate the ponytail. But um, <laughs> I think that by the time he starts getting on my nerves, that w- that's okay because we're supposed to be frustrated. Like, yes, absolutely. The first few times he's like, "Why? Why? Why does this involve me? Why am I here? I don't belong here. Like, like, let me leave. Let me do something else." There's a part of me that, even though I know that what he's doing isn't necessarily right, or uh, that you know, whatever, whatever it is, I'm thinking about that. Um, there's a part of me that kind of sympathizes with it, like, yeah, man, like he's just some jerk off, like you know, like what, why, why does it all rely on him in that way? Um, but by the end, it's it's already clear that he's not gonna get away. You know what I mean? That his protesting by the end of the this book starts to feel like so um, futile. Like, bro, <laughs> you're just gonna go. Like, just stop complaining and just do it. Um, and and then you know, in the end everything kind of revolves around him and then the whole universe basically evolves to a higher plane and he gets to live his life again. (laughs) And that moment I thought was as much as it was just another example of him having to do more work. (laughs) It also was very satisfying. I was like, yeah, that's right. He's the one, the whole universe is like, we're, we're done here, John, but you got to go do it again. He's, he's never going to get that rest that he wants, right? He's forever in that cycle of these uh, this same adventure again and again. Uh, I think that's I, amazing. I think that's such yeah. a cool, cool thing about it. It's, like it's, just a big, it's just one giant time loop, and you just turn it over and over and over. Because you're the fool, and that's what you do, is you just do the same thing over and over and never learn. And like, will you learn this time? Nope, not this time. <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> there is a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy element to this character in the sense that he is very much kind of pulled along with the plot, right? Like he doesn't know what's going on ever. And he's just like, there's all these incredible things happening, but he's just being kind of dragged along with it without that full consciousness. It's only the Inkle that gives him any insight whatsoever. And as is made <laughs> made very clear over and over, once that is no longer a part of him, once someone else has taken that, that he becomes a very ordinary person, but still is able to do some pretty extraordinary things even after that. Uh, what did you think of the character of John DeFool, Julia? I really like him. I, you know, I'm, everybody loves a good anti-hero and I think he's a great example of it and, you know, much more interesting to me, to me than a superhero, right? Because I don't, I have no, I can't relate to that at all, but I can kind of relate, you know, you can relate to John where you're just like, Jesus, just make it stop, man. I don't want to do this anymore. But that's kind of the fun of it. And I think it's interesting to have a character for Jodorowsky who you're like, come enlighten me this way. And he's like, nah, not interested. You know, like always those characters are always very keen to go forward and improve themselves as a character and a person. And he doesn't seem interested in that at all. So I think that's what makes him kind of a, a fun character to go with on this very epic quest to just is dragging his feet the whole way. You may hate his ponytail. I'm not a fan either, but I really like his breeches. He's yes. got like breeches. I love them. And he's got like little slippers. I'm into those. And he's got that cool jacket with the star. I like it. <laughs> I do feel that a lot of the potential annoyance that I felt with the character at the end of the Inkle is 
is addressed in Before the Eagle, where you learn a little bit more about who he is and where he came from. And you get a little bit more dimension with that. It's not something I really expected when I, when, when I went on to that story. I didn't really know what to expect from Before the Eagle. I didn't realize that it was going to be his basically his childhood to adulthood story. But that's something we'll get to in just a little bit. It is a character I have a lot of time for, but I also can see why it might get a little tiring. It's something I'm very interested to see how someone might want to adapt that into a film version. We'll talk about that in a little while as well. Speaking of film versions, one of the things we've already mentioned is that the concepts and the artwork for Dune were uh, influential and if not crucial for the artwork of the Inkle. I want to ask the both of you, do you see that? Now, we've seen some of the examples of the art, both in Jodorowsky's Dune and in some of the uh, artwork that's available online that Mobius did and some of the design work that was done for the spaceships and things like that. Uh, start keeping with you for a moment, Julia, did you see that Dune influence on the story of the Inkle? Not particularly. I feel like I, Annabelle 5 a lot. Yeah. But, you know, that was like, but this one, not not really. I don't feel like the, you know, the, the, I guess similar in a like going towards enlightenment kind of way, a messiah kind of deal, but no, not really. How about yourself, uh, Liam? Uh, I think a ton in the, there's a few of the designs. So like not so much Dune the book, but Dune right. the series of art and designs that we see in the documentary. A bunch mm-hmm. of the stuff in here reminded me of that you know whether that's the the original sort of base where the um techno pope was mm-hmm. uh that they eventually blew up and um uh the designs of some of the buildings and stuff there was a ton of that as far as themes no i mean frank herbert would be horrified by this book i think <laughs> i don't think he would be he would vibe with it at all um i guess in small ways in the idea that like um in dune because computers are not a thing, right? There's a bunch of ways that science has become in its biological nature <laughs> mystical, right? Yes. Like mm-hmm. like the the mentats or whatever they're called are almost mystical. You know what I mean? Or the Absolutely. the Benny Jesuits are both witches and they're doing science. Yes. Uh f- fucked up Science, you know, they're they're in a sense they're they're basically uh, eugenicists, but still, that's what they're doing is is genetic science. Only the result of their genetic science is almost magic. You know what right. I mean? And so, like Jodorowsky in this book, the science is important. It's the theme. It's part of what is both fueling and ruining these people's lives. And and it's everywhere. There's technology and all this stuff, but there's the deeper mystical thing going on as well. I think that is resonant with Dune too, but it's very much him. Whatever was going on with Herbert is not what's going on in his mind when he's doing this book, I don't think. I do see some of the designs, like the costume designs that we have sure, from Jodorowsky's yeah. Dune, particularly with the like aristocratic type character, like the yeah, upper that's level character. Like they're very cartoonish and very uh, colorful and outrageous in a lot of ways. And I think that's supposed to represent uh, some of the groups that would have been in the Dune movie. I have a, uh, an image in our notes here from Chris Foss, which is one of the buildings from the Jodorowsky Dune designs that almost looks like the Inkle itself uh, mm-hmm. and, and has a similar look to some of the architecture that we see in it. There's also a part where John DeFool is being taught how to uh, sword fight against a robot 
that is very similar to a uh, how Paul is meant to learn how to fight in or has been learning how to fight in the Dune novel. But in the way that that was meant to be brought to life, uh, to life in the uh, storyboards, it seems like it's very similarly presented. So I don't know if that was an idea. It was a direct reference. Uh, I don't think it was one of those things where it's like we have the storyboards for Dune. We're going to make this beat by beat because you cannot graft the story of Dune onto the story of the Inkle in any way, shape or form. But I do think a lot of the design ideas in different forms and, you know, uh, translated in a different way. There's a lot of like bits and pieces all throughout it that made their way into the Inkle. But though it is strange to think that when Jodorowsky talks about it, it's very much like, oh, we were talking about Dune and those ideas went right into that. I'd love his explanation for how that actually works. I do think actually, so uh, part of what's going on here though, is that it's a, it's a story that develops over, you know, eight years with a lot of different subplots. If you go back to the beginning of the book where the emperor basically is attacked and sort of dethroned by a gross fat guy and his uh, companion who seems sort of strange, uh, I think that's the Harkonnen. All he's done is made the emperor from the clear villain to a more ambiguous character. But like, I, I, I think there's definite influence in those early stories. It's just as the story goes forward, some of those early machinations don't mean anything. Like they aren't as nearly as important as some of the other details of the story. So like, you know, they're still there, but they're less, you know, and the purple guard and all that stuff is still there, but it's less important. So I, I wonder if the influence was really just on some of the early, because a lot of this too, you get this feeling more when you start the book that this thing was chopped up, right? right like right. we're reading it in a complete form that no one had read it until it was released later on, exactly. that they all read it in smaller chunks. I think a lot of those early small chunks there is some DNA going on, but by the midway through the collected edition, there's almost none. Even some of the buildings that reminded me of Dune, a lot of them have been blown up at this point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're talking eight years later too, yeah, in real time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so a lot of the newer designs that Mobius is doing don't look anything like anything from Dune, and so it's it's hard to see it. But I I think if someone's reading it and they only look at those first, you know, maybe like. Uh, 50 to 100 pages, there's still some th- characters, uh, design elements that remind me of the work that they were doing on Dune. But I think, you know, by midway through, they've really shed all of that. And and I get why biographically it's connected, but I don't feel like thematically it's really there. He's really developing his own ideas by that point. Again, with the understanding that we are talking about the thematic elements of the book Dune. We don't really know what the thematic elements of Jodorowsky's Dune were necessarily going to be, right? Because we already know he was going into some wild places based on the subject matter. Well, he talks about the ending and what he thought. I mean, there was definitely a a lot of suggestion in the documentary that I think when he talks about it now, having read the in-call, I'm like, oh, well, that's in the in-call. You know what I mean? Like now, when I think Mm -hmm. back, I'm like, oh, you did develop that idea a little bit although you know there's not quite the like sentient planet that converts all the other planets per se but some of those themes of 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 uh this one person's uh uh who they are sort of spreading out to other people i think there's elements of that here too uh and even later on you know in the later books he's still developing the idea that john defoe's love is going to be the key for the whole universe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely 
Uh, before we finish up talking about the Inkle, I want to talk about a little bit more focused on Mobius's work in it. Uh, I mean, this is a Jodorowsky podcast, but uh, a comic book like this, it relies so heavily on that artwork to bring these ideas to life. There are so many striking images in this. I will say at first, when I started reading it, and we have these kind of large cityscapes and things along those lines, it really did remind me of, of course, reading Heavy Metal when I was a kid. There were so many of these European science fiction comics which which had a look like that of course i didn't realize at that time that that mobius had such a hand in kind of crafting that entire style of that time period but as the the work goes on as the story goes on and you see all of these different locations and you see you know the gigantic acid pit leading into this underground world covered in rats and you see you know these space battles and there's so much that ha- that is goes on throughout the entirety of the story into the basically meeting God at the very end of it. I mean, this, this this story goes everywhere and Mobius has to bring it all to life. Are there any particular images that were striking to you? Uh, going over to Julia once again, are there any particular images that struck that stuck out to you in the work? Well, I think that anybody who thinks about the Incar will think about the shot of him falling, right? That amazing Absolutely. perspective um, and being introduced to an entire world that way is just spectacular and really sets you up for what you know is going to be greatness, right? You see that, you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be awesome, you know, from this one image. Um, I think the other parts that I really enjoyed with the very, was when the seven companions kind of got all together and there was like a, you know, with the two end cows coming together and there's big like psychedelic, like it felt very like if you gave Jonah Roscoe all the money to do like a psychedelic sequence, sure. he would do something like that. Like I was like, yes, why have we not had that? <laughs> I want more of that. Uh, and it was very, it felt very, uh, even though it's not, you know, it was made in the 80s, it felt very 70s to me in that way, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. I, I, I've already mentioned it, but we do see these moments of just the unbelievable scope of what this story is trying to tell, right? And the fact, you know, we are reinforced, it's reinforced to us as the audience again and again that John DeFool is such a small part in this larger story, and that is reinforced over and over again. And even with that image of him falling continuously, I mean, what we learn is that he is the fool forever falling, that this is a cycle. And we see that image repeated once again and again and again. But there are so many kind of mixture of organic matter and technology in uh, almost a (laughs) Cronenbergian way, especially (laughs) as it goes on. You really see that kind of strange mixture because it's all kind of become the same thing in this universe. But I have to say that the art to me really shines when it gets less real, (laughs) less uh, physical, less um, even less comprehensible, and it really leans into the weirdness. And then you get some really striking imagery uh, towards near the end of the book. And, you know, there are moments in this that for a your average artist would be impossible to bring to life, right? I mean, if you're talking about a person meeting God or transferring into pure energy or, you know, tra- even just, just a city full of rats that are growing and shrinking in size, depending on yeah. your fear levels Shout- of them. Shout out to the psycho rats. Yeah, exactly. Right. These are things that 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 you know you'd have an artist who could handle one part of it and not the other. But Mobius is was just a genius and just an incredible uh, uh, craftsman. And the fact that apparently my understanding is that his the way that he worked is he would do one page a day. So he would no matter what happens, he's just doing a page, which is an unbelievable amount of work. When you talk about the level of detail that he has worked into some of these cityscapes, Liam, uh, finishing up on our discussion on the Inkle, uh, what are some of the striking images from Mobius for you? Well, I already said that the the 
broader panels where he gives us an idea of scope yeah, yeah. are you know really impressive in their detail he's also very brutal uh you know it's it's you know definitely Jodorowsky's idea that there's a city and the city is a shaft it's just a big fucking hole in the ground and at the bottom of the hole in the ground is a lake of acid you know that's that's more of a narrative thing but when mobius draws that and he draws it such that the rich people live in a big ship that can close the hole on all the people below yeah he draws it in such a way that it makes me feel bad right you mm-hmm. know what i mean like there are people who draw uh, extravagant, extreme, unbelievable things, and the way that they do it makes it feel lush and 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 whatever. And Mobius has some of that, but when when Mobius wants you to feel the sca- the the scope of something and make it f- have it make you feel small, mm. I fucking feel I feel that it, he sometimes his landscapes or his buildings or or even just the scenarios he's depicting. They make me feel bad. They make me feel uncomfortable because I think I'm going to be crushed by that. I couldn't live in that. Or I feel like if that exists, it's the most horrible thing. You know, when they're in not just the psycho rats, but this millennia of garbage that the psycho rats and the and the and the mutants live in or uh, when when uh, the battle of the humans uh, up the cone to get to the the uh what's it called the uh you know what i'm talking about on the on the on the berg planet oh sure yeah of course what oh is yeah, that? yeah yeah when they're fighting oh the up to the cone to he can impregnate the uh yeah what is that called <laughs> it remember. just went out of my head but <laughs> the, just that that battle stuff was just utterly gross and i think that's the thing with with mobius for me as an artist because he's so into detail some of the stuff is like just so grotesque in its detail mm-hmm. and its blood and goo and, and vomit. But then when he's depicting some of the more abstract things, he's unafraid to make them like stark and beautiful and impressive. Like to, to think of, uh, you know, Julia pointed out earlier how often uh, our bird friend just vomits. He's always <laughs> vomiting. And every time he vomits, it's like really intense. And to think that that detail was the same detail put into the 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 universal light at the end that big gold face that John is floating in front of and it's like oh yeah the same guy drew those things you know mm-hmm. and it feels to me like he put as much care into that as he did the other and that's there's just something about it that really like gets me um is it my favorite art ever maybe not but the things that he's very good at are just the best i just think like the, the, there are certain things that he, Mobius does that I don't think any other artist has figured out how to do that I've seen. Yeah, it's an incredible achievement in art. And it, it, it there's a good reason why people point to it as one of the kind of supreme examples of comic book art. And again, with the understanding that this is being drawn over a period of years, the fact that there is an internal consistency to that art is also a pretty amazing accomplishment it's something we as you mentioned you know you go back and and we read it as one complete piece the fact that it all fits together even though it took that long to put together is is pretty amazing and you know it it will be a testament to these other works that we're about to talk to that those pieces fit together as well and and some of them took a very long time to come together uh any final thoughts lee i'm sticking with you on the inkle before we move on to before the inkle 
No, just that it's it's the sort of thing that I'm definitely going to reread, not just because it is fun and funny and gross and has all these things going on, but also I feel like I think Yodorovsky is doing something new by the end, that he mm-hmm. has evolved as a storyteller and as a honestly a philosopher and so like he he's he's uh evolving the story in a direction that i think is different than some of his other stories and so i want to know more about that and i and i and i feel like there's more there to unpack and and i and i hope other people feel the same um and if for some reason you've made it this far and you haven't read it at all i you know you got to read it it's it's really great (laughs) julia any final thoughts on the inkle I think you should read it. I have recommended it to several of my friends. I'm lucky enough to have a group of friends that involve a lot of Jodorowsky fans. So when I'm like, if you like Jodorowsky, you're going to like it because it's just him, like times a thousand going bananas. And so if it's something that, you know, is makes you recommend it to people, then that's got to have good love behind it, right? Yeah, he would think so. Yeah, look, if you're a fan, <laughs> if you're a fan of the work of Jodorowsky, I do think there's enough of a thorough line here towards, you know, from, from, what you would have liked about the, his work up to this point, uh, whether it be the Holy Mountain or El Topo or really anything else that you might know about him, that that you would be able to appreciate that he's putting a lot of those same kind of concepts and ideas into this. But it's a completely different form. And it, it is interesting to see how people respond to that. I know there are many people out there who, of Jodorowsky, they only know his comics work. They don't know his films at all. And that's, that seems kind of very foreign, I think, to us who entered this podcast with the idea of knowing a lot more about his films than anything else that he's done. But uh, one of the things that I'm really starting to appreciate is that Jodorowsky is a very multifaceted artist who did a lot of different kinds of things. And uh, and maybe I won't love all of them equally, but I was very pleased with my experience with The Inkle. Moving on, after the completion of The Inkle in 1988, Jodorowsky started a follow-up before The Inkle that went from 1988 to 1995, this time without Mobius. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Before The Inkle follows the story of John DeFool before the events depicted in The Inkle, from a young rascal who loses both of his parents early to a pre-detective who uncovers a dark secret with serious political ramifications. He's helped along the way by Depot, a concrete seagull he rescues from the streets, Kobo 5, an abandoned cybo cop, and Luz Dagara, an aristo who falls in love with John. While on the opposite side, the super divinoid, the president, and the prime minister will try to stop him at every turn. Uh, yeah, this is the origin story of John DeFool in Before the Inkle, written by Jodorowsky and illustrated by Zoran Janjatov, a Serbian comics artist, uh, an incredible artist and someone who was basically uh, when Mobius uh, did not want to come back. Janjatov, back in 1986, he went to the offices of Le Humanoid Associate Humanoids and met with Jodorowsky, showing him illustrations, basically begging for this job, saying that he could do art like Mobius. And I have to say, and this is me just kind of jumping the gun a bit, his work, maybe it's not as detailed and maybe it doesn't have that emotional element or heft uh, that that the Mobius's work does at his best. But moving from reading the Inkle into this, there is a consistency in the style that you could almost believe that Mobius did this as well. There is a real uh, uh, high quality of art here. This is not kind of this drop off that I was concerned about when I first started it. Now, no, and, what, and reading them one right after the other, it just, there's no jolt of feeling yes. like, oh, it's a different artist. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was the thing I was really kind of expecting, knowing that there would be a different artist involved. Now, the story itself is very different. A little bit more straightforward, I would say, than The Inkle. It's telling a story that has... It does introduce some very important characters for uh, File Inkle, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, but it, you know, we get a lot more fleshed out version of who John DeFool was, uh, all of these experiences that he had, this adventure that he had beforehand. It's also explained why he never references that adventure in the original comic book because he gets his memory wiped. But some very important characters for his life are, are introduced. Some of them make it, some of them don't. Some of them will be brought back once again when we complete the story in just a little bit. But uh, sticking with you, Julia, what did you think of Before the Inkle? I really enjoyed it because, like I said, I you know what for me, uh, care, learning about a character is the most interesting thing. So getting to see how John became who he is in the Incal was really interesting to me, and it did feel like a complete continuation. You know, it just obviously a prequel, but the same the the same stuff. Like it felt the mm-hmm. same. It didn't feel like it had uh, it didn't lose any quality. It felt like it was just continuing the story. Um, so I thought it was really neat. And, and also getting to learn more, not only about John, but also about the whole Jodiverse that we're in and how things work and how deep the uh, horrible, horrible government goes and all the terrible right. things that they're doing. Uh, <laughs> um, all of it. So, I, you know, for me, like it, they just it just kind of continue on. And I, I like that. As I said before, I don't think it's like an essential part of enjoying the Inkle. But if you are going to go forward. It, whether it be, you know, with the rest of these Inkle sequels or the rest of the Jodoverse, it seems like, you know, it's it's a fleshing out of a lot of parts of it. Liam, we said at the beginning that that the parts that I think that, not to put any words in your mouth, that you had a lot more kind of um, understanding of or a full comprehension of were uh, earlier parts and that, that, that leaned heavier on the cityscapes and some of the satirical elements like that. The Before the Inkle really leans heavy on that because so much of it takes place in that city. Uh, and, and it does involve a lot of the kind of the machinations and the governments and all the infighting and all that sort of thing. It also kind of is wrapped up into a detective story, which is something that I kind of connected with the most. I'm a big fan of uh, old film noir. And it was one of the things that when I first read The Inkle and knowing that the main character is a detective, I thought we would have gotten a little more of that. And then we get this in Before the Inkle. I was very uh, happy to see that. What are your thoughts on Before the Inkle? I liked it a lot. I didn't. Uh, immediately like it as much as the ink call, I think because part of what it inevitably has to do is answer certain questions. There's, there's something ephemeral about the ink call where you don't know who John DeFool is in a lot of ways. You know about where he's going, but not knowing who he is had its own sort of appeal, I felt like. It's kind um, of like, sorry to interrupt, but it's like to me, it, it, there is an element of well, in John Carpenter's Halloween, you're fighting the boogeyman. In Rob Zombie's, you have this whole kind of filling in who the boogeyman sure. is. And it's like, do you want to know who the boogeyman is? Do you want to know who the fool is? But over time, I found the backstory I was getting in Before the Call like pretty interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But I kept having trouble understanding how it could possibly be his backstory. Right, right of course. Yes. And then it gets to this tragic moment right Mm -hmm. uh and i guess we're not really worried about spoilers but um suddenly the theme of him being dropped back into this world and being told to remember becomes even more pointed and painful 
Yes. You know, it, it takes on a new meaning. Previously, you know, the end of the in call, I'm thinking, you know, he's got to remember. He's just got to remember, like, who he is and what happened before. Uh, and then at the end of before the in call, I'm like, oh, man. He's got a lot of stuff he should remember. You yeah, know? right. <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a whole different uh, 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 pile of worms. <laughs> well, uh, here, here here's a question for you. Uh, Debo doesn't get his memory wiped, right? When he right. gets the power to talk from the incal, why doesn't he just tell him, tell John everything, and just be like, yeah. "Hey, so much to remember. Let me tell you, I can talk now. <laughs> I couldn't tell you before. I could only croot, but now I can talk." Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, and and also. Because we've already, he's already established in the in call, right? That um, John's already survived one whole universe ascending to another plane of existence, <laughs> and all of existence ascended except for him. So, like, it, it, things can be different each time. Sure, it, it's mm-hmm. like he's in a new world, and and we see that literally because uh, who is to be trusted and who is the villains changes in each book. That's right. In each book, there's a different focus and there's a different group of bad guys. And by the third book, it's almost an entirely different idea of what's at stake. But all the same themes are there. It's like it's 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 sort of this like reincarnation repetition thing, but it doesn't repeat in a way that's boring. Right. Like there's a lot of of repetition of ideas in certain ways in this one from the from the other one. But it it's never in a way that's like uninteresting. It's it's still surprising. Um, what we'll find is that in terms of that like idea of continuity and repetition, even the way that the final inkle came together will uh, unintentionally play on that, right? Because right. we will see the beginning of that story told twice because of circumstances, which we'll get into in just a little bit. But yeah, the idea of alternate versions of John DeFool that are experiencing this in slightly different ways is completely valid for the whole story that's being told. Yeah. So it's like a time loop, but it's like a descending time loop, right? Where you're like descending into different dimensions as you go down. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's valid, especially because we do get to meet various versions of John DeFool, some who have reached different levels of consciousness in their (laughs) adventures. (laughs) Well, I think with, with the introduction of Luz, the other thing that we're given, you know, part, part of, uh, Yodorowsky's idea here is to give you actual transformation. So John DeFool does go through a lot of transformation, even as he's the most recalcitrant, you know, like the whole time in the end call, he doesn't want to do stuff, but actually he's growing a little bit each time. It's more like, he's like, look, I did grow and now I'm done growing and I don't want to grow anymore. Uh, and they're, they're, no, you got to do a little bit more, John, you got to do a little bit more. And, and so like in, in this one, we get multiple characters. It's, it's, it's not just John. There's a few different people who seem like one thing and over time with good reason, right? It's not randomly, um, they are transformed. And I find that really interesting, even if there were there were aspects of this one that made me a little uncomfortable. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in just a moment. Now, Jodorowsky, he liked Janjitov's art for this because he considered it similar to Mobius, yet distinct enough that it could be perfect for the atmosphere of the prequel since it had a more primitive look. He, Jodorowsky recognized that Mobius would have been the logical choice, but he says, and this is all I could find about why Mobius did not come back, is that he just wasn't interested in it uh just before we get into the the story in a little bit more detail your thoughts on the art uh, i mentioned before i think it actually does have a, a 
you know, there's a very much of a continuous style from Mobius in it. Does, uh, does the artist here live up to what Mobius created previously? Continuing with you, Liam. I like it. I don't like it as much as Mobius's art, um, mm-hmm. but it is. it feels familiar to me. I'm wondering if I've seen this guy's stuff other places whether that's in heavy metal or other places i'm not sure Sure. i'm definitely more of a reader of comics than i am a follower of writers and artists which is my my problem right like i you know i probably should pay more attention to those things so that i can follow people's careers and and i haven't done that so there was something very familiar about his style beyond just its similarity to mobius but i didn't like it as much as mobius's art i will say that this before the Incall is a lot more grotesque in a lot of ways than the Incall. And there's a lot of grotesquerie as we've already talked about in the Incall. But in this one is particularly that grotesquerie comes in the form of violence against people, sexual violence sometimes, but also just people being torn to pieces and ripped to shreds and their guts being torn out and things like that. And uh, I'm not saying that Mobius couldn't handle that, but there's something a little dirtier about this artwork, which I think really suits that level of kind of violence that's on display here. And maybe it's a little more appropriate for it, whether it's just by happenstance or circumstance or not. I really do like the art for it. And as I already mentioned, I was saying to you, Julia, uh, I I expected there to be sort of this, oh, adjustment period, but I got into it right away. Your thoughts, Julia, on uh, Genjitov's work in Before the Inkle? I know that he had tremendous huge shoes to fill right imagine the pressure he felt Mm -hmm. following after mobius but i think he does a a great job and as you mentioned how much you love the backgrounds liam and and his backgrounds aren't as lush i noticed that but is Mm -hmm. that it's you know that's that's pretty uh small pickings you're you're being pretty picky there right um so i thought it was it was beautiful and i think that it served it fine like i didn't feel any sort of i liked it (laughs) <laughs> how about that <laughs> i have no like i have extremely limited uh, drawing ability myself so to me an artist is it, when they're drawing something that reminds me of reality or brings even a fantasy world to life it's like a magic trick to me i don't know how they do it i don't know how they can take that picture in their mind and turn it into something that that looks like the thing that they were thinking to me that there's just no way that i can do that so to me i have so much respect for these artists but i can't in terms of ranking them against each other, I can't really say. All I can say, you know, it's it's like that 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 old saying, right? I don't know if it's art, but I know what I like. But I mean, I certainly like the art in this, and I think it serves the story and serves Jodorowsky's concepts very well. I hinted at something though when I was talking about the art just a moment ago with that level of violence that takes place in this. Uh, before the Inkle, it really does focus on the down and dirty parts of this city that John DeFool lives in, right? His mother is a prostitute. We spend a lot of time with sex workers in this. We see a lot of um, the the uh, police force in this futuristic city, you know, killing people indiscriminately. We see a lot of bodies, again, torn apart, organs, faces ripped to pieces. In some ways, it feels a little more brutal than the work uh, in the Inkle. And I wondered, I just wanted to get both of your take on that. Did you have any difficulty with the tone of Before the Inkle? Continuing with you, Julia, specifically, you know, it's something that we've talked about before on other episodes. There's a lot of kind of sexualized violence in this that that I felt a little uncomfortable with, but it's also something that we see a lot in Jodorowsky's work. Any issues with the content in the in this work? Uh, well, yeah, as a you know, I'm a horror movie junkie, yeah. so mm-hmm. violence doesn't really bother me. And especially it's even less real when it's in a 
illustration, right? It's not, it's not moving. It's not this blood spurting out. It's just this kind of picture. So I don't really have a problem with that at all. Uh, of course, there's a lot, you know, a lot of the themes and a lot of the, you know, the, the big secret that he reveals, uh, is, is fucking terrible. And like, you know, injecting things into babies, nobody likes that. Like right, that's just right, terrible, right. right? It's, it's awful. So, but you go, okay, well this is, but it, that's what it is. <laughs> you know, like, what can you say about it? Like, would I rather not, it did make me uncomfortable, but it's meant to make me uncomfortable. So I think that it did what it set out to do. I do think that Jodorowsky, maybe it's because we have been particularly sensitive to it, but there's a lot of rape in Before the Inkle, and there's a lot of, of threatened rape, and there's a lot of comedically toned references to rape in it. And it, it, I have to say, I felt pretty uncomfortable with aspects of it. It is a reality of this kind of horrific society that is on display here. It's not meant in any way to say that these characters are good or bad, but it, it does play into something that we've already talked about, which is that irredeemable characters in this work are not shown to be totally irredeemable. And that might be even after they've done some things that in my eyes would be seen as completely irredeemable. Uh, and, and maybe that's, it's part of the larger story and larger theme being uh, spoken about here. It's also kind of goes back to that idea that this is a society without love, without compassion, without empathy for people whatsoever. And that is the kind of realities of a society like that. And again, there's a lot of satirical elements here as well, and we're not necessarily supposed to be taking it completely seriously. But I do have to say that Jodorowsky's perspective on sex and sexuality is something that he is not afraid to lean into and uh, and and really kind of put into his work, which, again, is is what one of the things that makes it so distinctive. Liam, your thoughts on the the tonal changes on Before the uh, Inkle? I mean, I think simply by focusing a story more in the in the city shaft Mm -hmm. it's going to be grosser and more violent and more you know like in the inkle they leave that city after a bit right yeah absolutely and 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 it it becomes more almost like people are watching from that city but you know uh, we already have an idea that that place must be pretty awful considering how often they have uh, what they call riots that seem like full revolutions, they're having them on a regular basis. So life there. They must have be a suicide pretty... bridge which has timed suicides where people are right. killing themselves so often, right? Right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. So that's already kind of a theme uh, to them being sort of in that space. But I do think in being in that space, it feels tonally a little more rough. It feels a little darker. I don't know. It, it it feels almost like uh, a little more angry in that, um, mm. and in some ways, in ways that I very much appreciate, because you know the idea that all of the pretended holiness of this upper class is really through the utter degradation of people below them yes. uh, to create these fake halos. Yeah, amazing. I love everything about so that. Great. Like I think that's great. You know. Um, and so like, I, I don't want to say it's, it's not useful content per se, but I, but I do think if someone is, if someone has read the in call and jumps into before the in call, you know, I, I'd love to say to them like, Hey, this one is a lot more dark and it does have, you know, uh, more sexual violence. And, you know, th- there is the part with the pirates, and I get the idea here is that like they're using rape as a term, but but it seems like it's actually you know 
much more consensual and and yeah. and mm-hmm. they're just pretending that it's about violation but it's just not a fun joke for me so it doesn't really work for me in that way uh but it's also like a short part and is you know interrupted by such i felt an amazing part of uh the pirate you know uh, interacting with Luz and and, yeah. and what that's going to end up being that I kind of like was more focused on that aspect and, and so you know I, I I'd want someone who felt sensitive about that sort of thing to know going in like this could be rough but you know it, it it's something that is I think more noticeable to me only because it's something we've talked about with him before in comparison to other sort of contemporaries i would say i don't think sure. it's that that bad actually especially like there's some real rough stuff in uh metal hurlant so i don't think it's yeah, any worse yeah, absolutely. than what you might ever read in a in any issue of, of heavy metal it you know we don't want jodorowsky we don't want a version of jodorowsky that is restrained right i mean this the whole sure. point of these novels is that this is as unfiltered a version of him as you can get. And that is part of his style. Let's say it's just, it seemed to be particularly on display in this work. And uh, it is something that, that it certainly drew my attention though. It didn't spoil the story for me in any way, shape or form. I also wonder sometimes about the translation aspect of it to a certain extent. This, of course, this, uh, none of these uh, comics were written originally in English. And you wonder what sort of variation on some of these terms are meant to, to be even that you know the the coca-cola parody that we were mentioning just a little while ago that it's a different word in the in the uh, original french translation so you just wonder exactly how that translation actually occurs there's actually been some controversy around the the uh the artwork in this particular uh uh book before the inkle it was recolored for a, a version a few years ago and everyone hated it it completely changed the tone of it to the point where now when the only version that you can get is the original coloring which uh really does, I think, suit the material very, very well. Uh, going back to the actual kind of overall idea before the Inkle, it kind of serves, I mean, it fully serves as a prequel that introduces a lot of the characters from the Inkle. It explains some of their motivations and fills in backstory. Does finding out that information spoil any of the mysteries? This is something that we already talked about to some extent. Do you think that... Now, n- let me make something very, very clear. If you're trying to get into the Inkle, don't read before the Inkle first. It won't make any sense. I was just going to say, maybe maybe you should read it first. I don't I, think I, that I, most of the references and characters, I just don't think that it works at all without having the context of what comes after. For one thing, it might even seem more kind of dour and depressing because you won't even know that there's a lot of light at the end <laughs> when, you, when you're getting through that content. I don't know if it would work. Actually, maybe that's that's worth discussing, Julie. You think that, that it might be worthwhile actually to start with before the Inkle? Sure. I mean, I, because I, you know, I feel like I, I had to do it the way I did it, right? I had to read the NCAL first and then go to before the NCAL, but doing it, knowing what I know now, I go, okay, I, I started to read the NCAL and I was like, wow, this is intense. There's a lot of information coming at me. And I feel like before the NCAL was exactly the same. I was like, I wasn't any more prepared for the universe. I don't feel like it was still mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, we're now we've gone back in time and now we're going on a different level and we're talking different characters. So even though you're in the same place, it still felt kind of new. Um, I thought, I think you could read before the end because I mean, it takes place before. So it is, you know, if you wanted to be that kind of person and go hardcore like me, but uh, I don't think it would, I don't think it would make it weird at all. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, obviously you wouldn't understand all of the references, especially when sure. they, reference other characters like the Meta Baron and things like that within it. 
Liam, any thoughts towards that? I didn't really consider even the idea of reading it before. And I'm, 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 I have to admit, I'm glad I didn't, because even in the context of talking about it, it would be very confusing. But do you think that you could start with Before the Inkle and then move on to its sequel? Or Well, <laughs> I mean, I think you can do anything you want, Doug. That's, yeah, of course. That's one of the beauties <laughs> of life. And, uh, you know, when I collected comics, it wasn't chronological right you couldn't find the issues Certainly. like sometimes you'd read an issue and then you couldn't get one that was in order for like four issues and so who knows what happened in between and it sometimes it took me years to find out oh that person died okay because it just wasn't clear what i had missed in yeah but i don't know if this is necessarily an analog to that this is closer to like watching the godfather 2 and then watching the godfather 1 right I guess. I mean, what I was going to say is you can do whatever you want, Doug, Mr. Rule Follower over here. But <laughs> but would I rec- host this thing, okay? <laughs> but but would I recommend it? I don't think I would recommend it. I don't think it I think I would only recommend it if I thought it added something. Like if, sure. if I thought reading it first would would in some way help. But in in a sense, I don't even want to say help because like as much as I'm like Man, there's a lot here, and it's kind of confusing in some ways. I think the urge to figure it out is something that we've said before. It's not really useful when it comes to Yodorowsky. Like, I want to have a, an understanding of it. That's not the, quite the same as figuring it out. Like, I feel like, it, you know, if I'm reading before first, because I think that will make it easier uh, to read the second. I don't think either one is going to be easy. They're both packed with ideas and with. Uh, things that feel both alien and familiar. And so I, I'd rather people just read it in whatever order they want, as long as they're willing to like sit with it and think about it and probably reread it. You know, I so. mean, you do say that, Liam, but you can't really read Final Inkle first. I mean, there's all these explicit references. If you're an anarchist, you can do whatever the yeah, fuck you okay, want. Yeah, OK, you're right. I shouldn't. I don't want to live by these the rules that the man a tells psycho me. Psycho anarchist. I mean, again, if you if you're asking me what I recommend, no, <laughs> of course don't read the final one first. You know, but there's going to be someone who does. Like it. Like that's also the thing about releasing something in separate series like this. Somebody has already. It's already happened, Doug. Like we we're talking about it. Like whatever. It's our, someone already had that experience. Yeah, I suppose that's fair enough. One of the interesting things about Before the Ankle is the introduction of this character, Colvo 5, which is a robot, a former cyber cop, uh, who has uh, takes on almost a father figure, in fact, very much a father figure uh, uh, character, becomes a father figure character to John DeFool and helps him as he tries to become a detective and really becomes very close to him and has this kind of quirky uh, aspect where he cannot feel emotions because if he does he's been programmed to explode which we know is just like (laughs) something that's set up to happen at some point it becomes very much kind of a tragic figure because of the inevitability of his death uh, but also becomes incredibly important to John DeFoole even if a lot of that importance is wiped from his memory at the end of this book but one of the interesting parts of him is that he is an explicitly religious character maybe the most uh, even aside from the techno popes he is uh, kind of traditionally religious in in a kind of a Christianity style religion of any character that we see in any of these books. And he's a robot, uh, but he's quoting specifically. I don't know if those quotes are directly from the Bible, but they're supposed to be from a holy book, quote unquote. Liam, what was your take on the idea of this kind of explicitly religious aspect of this character? I thought it was interesting. I, I felt like it was meant to represent sort of like a beginning stage. Like I think in a lot of things that Yodorowsky does, 
um, Christianity represents a starting place. Yeah. You know, it represents a beginning of interest in things. It's never, I don't think, the end point, but it's always a place to begin, especially the aspects of the tradition that are focused on, like, forgiveness and love and um, justice. Like, all those things are meaningful in and of themselves, but, like, they never seem to be connected directly to enlightenment. It's so strange that to have a character though that as John's going through these th- like these th- these adventures, he's yelling like parables at him and like quotes from the book. He's like, "Don't forget, you know this thing from the Bible." Uh, it just it it seems a uh, it's I I had trouble picking up on what it was trying to say simply because Jodorowsky, the melding of different spiritual backgrounds has been such a part of his work that we've encountered so far. Seeing something that's such explicitly saying, you know, that a character that we're obviously supposed to love and a character that was obviously supposed to be a good character and the right character that's giving so much guidance to John DeFool. It's just interesting that he seems to be taking a kind of explicitly Christian point of view with that character. I guess so. I just saw it. I didn't see it particularly as strongly as you did um, to me. Maybe it's because I know that those things are not from the Bible. Uh, but um, I think more I just saw it as... Um, that in this future, the only person who's in danger of feeling anything is the robot. <laughs> you know, that, that like the idea that the robot is kind of functioning. I, you know, I, I mean, you, you see him one way. I saw more as like the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. Honestly. I mean, certainly I think that's, that's a, 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 um, and so like he's, he is sort of like the guru in a lot of mm. ways. Um, and the, and the mentor, uh, but, but you know, he's a, he's a rogue cop bot. And I think that irony is more what's fueling those interactions than anything else. And I think the idea of him quoting from a book is just a, a way to get that character across. It didn't feel to me like a specific reference at well, all. Well, don't you think that Kobo 5 is the most Jodorowsky-esque character? And like, if there was going to be a character played by Jodorowsky in this, it would probably be that robot? Oh, no. I, I think I think Jodorowsky... I, I think what my theory was confirmed for me in the final book... Jodorowsky's John DeFool. He's always been John DeFool. And I think he's the most John DeFool in the third book when the four versions of John yeah. DeFool show mm-hmm. up. And I went, oh, those are just four versions of Jodorowsky. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the everyman. <laughs> Julia, uh, what were your thoughts on Kobo 5 as a character? Very important one in this, of course, not referenced at all for good reason in the original uh, novel. Uh, what did you think of that character in Before the Inkle? Oh, I liked it because, of course, he's taking care of someone who, you know, yeah. John, who needs who needs needs love, even though you're not technically getting love, right? Because then it'll make him explode. <laughs> uh, but you know, any character in anything that just becomes this, you know, Bible, even though a sacred book quoting person would make me go, you know. But because it's a robot, it becomes very satirical. Because why does a robot need religion? Right. The whole point of religion is you're going to die and live on in this heaven or hell or whatnot. It's like, what does a robot need with that? Doesn't useful at all. So what is what use is religion to a robot? None, as far as I can tell. And yet he's the only person we see who has any sort of true spirituality because we have the techno pope. But that's all kind of a ploy for political power. But this is really the only religious character we get who actually seems to be good and believes this from the heart. But for, for what reason? What bonus? What benefit does he get from it? I love how Kobo is explicitly has emotions all throughout it, right? He's yes. he's like I can't I can't feel concern as he's feeling concern. 
it, it, it's a it, it's very much like a, a data from Star Trek type situation where it's like the robot with no emotions who just happens to be showing some variation on emotions at all times. Uh, <laughs> Julie, any final thoughts on Before the Inkle? I think it's uh, definitely worth a read. I think if you, I mean, Absolutely. I think the Incal works on its own and if you just want to read those you'll be satisfied uh but i think that this is a, a good bonus to it and i think it was a good read i enjoyed it i i think that if you finish the inkling you're like boy i wish i had more of that well you're in luck there's yeah. more right? you know and it's i don't think you have it's it's worthy of comparison because the story is so different but to me it's like if you really want more of this more great artwork more of the very similar style of writing more of this main character you get it in in spades and you get uh, a lot more on top of that as well liam any final thoughts on before the ankle i at first it took me a bit to get into it because it i liked the ankle more sure but i think when it wrapped up um outside of a couple of aspects here and there that i thought were a little bit unnecessary um i ended up liking it Maybe not more, but as much as the in-call, which is crazy because I really just thought, like, as I started, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit of a slog. I don't think it's going to be as good. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like bringing it all the way to the point with the two women and the introduction of the in-call into his life. Like, I actually didn't really need that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but all the stuff before that um, – it got to a point where I was like, I think I maybe like this as much or more than the other one because it just really got into some uh, stuff that I thought was really interesting. Uh, parts of it made me more uncomfortable. There's definitely some more rough things, but I think that's not a problem. As long as you're okay with it as a reader, I think it's all good. It's all part of the story. It's just not as as it just has more to struggle with maybe for some people. So now we're moving on to After the Inkle. Now, this one requires a little bit of explanation. After the Inkle came out in the year 2000 uh, and was drawn by Mobius. It's Jodorowsky and Mobius reuniting to work on the final part. uh, I'm assuming it's the final part of the Inkle story. Um, People are very excited about it at the time. There is a single about 60 page issue, but that was it. It was not completed and was not continued from there. So after the Incal is an unfinished sequel to the Incal. It was meant to have more than one issue, but only the first one was completed. The new dream begins exactly where the Incal had left off with John DeFool falling down suicide at Ali. However, it's quickly revealed that all of the events of the Incal had been a dream. Mobius wasn't interested in continuing illustrating after the Incal, so the project was left on hold. Eventually, Jodorowsky decided to retell the story of the new dream with kind of some significant changes in the first 50 pages of the first issue. A final inkle, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Now, it's not worthwhile to tell the story of After the Inkle because it really will be told again at the beginning of Final Inkle. So it, it basically, After the Inkle was going to be the first part of Final Inkle, but uh, it had to be reworked when Mobius no longer was interested in continuing. And there's some controversy about whether it was Mobius who didn't want to continue or whether Jodorowsky didn't want Mobius to continue. And that's something that I just wanted to talk about before we move into Final Inkle. I did read After the Inkle. It is interesting to see the same story with some differences told with one artist and then another uh, and and seeing their different perspectives on certain things. Uh, just want to spend a little bit of time on this with you, uh, Liam. Any general thoughts on After the Inkle and the artwork and the story it was trying to tell? 
I mean, I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff going on, and and I I don't know what to make of the changes that were made between the two, but I will say that I didn't find. I felt like Mobius's art in After wasn't for me as compelling as his art on The In Call. I agree. I can't. I can't disagree. And I don't know if it's the coloring. I mean, around this I time think period, it's the, I think it's the, the. I think the coloring is legitimately bad. I yes. like. I think. I think that not that the line art is all great either, but the the there are some moments, and I think in the art itself is pretty good. But the coloring is just so muddy at times that I just felt like. It was gross. It, it it just it was visually unappealing at times, which I for me Mobius is never visually unappealing. You know, so the story of after the incall and moving into the final incall involves a disease, a, a an, an epidemic that is tearing through the city and uh, leads to some really kind of grotesque imagery. And it's interesting to compare how that disease is portrayed in Mobius's art compared to well the artist that we'll talk about in just a few minutes but i have to say it's it was a little distressing to to view after the ankle and again mobius had been through some illnesses it, it he probably wasn't at his the peak of his abilities but uh whether it be the coloring or whether it not be that it uh i i have to say i actually oh maybe this is controversial controversial to say i'm glad that they swapped out the artist for the remainder of final Incall. julia any thoughts on that yeah, it was weird because I, I started to read after the Idcow and like halfway through, I was like, who, who, who's the, who illustrated this? I looked back, I was like, oh my God, this is Mobius? Oh, okay. Like, I really didn't think it was him. It didn't seem up to the kind of standard I'd seen in, in the Incow. So I was surprised. It's still beautiful and it's, you know, mm. and it's fine. As you said, it's, it's wonderful to see the same story interpreted by two different artists. That's always really cool. And it didn't, it's, you know bad for mobius and it's not bad but like that's say it's still fantastic right because it's mobius you're like oh it's still beautiful it's just not i guess once you've seen in cal you have these expectations that didn't exactly go to and maybe that's what jodorowsky felt i don't know um so i didn't i don't really have a a dog in this race though so you know whether it's mobius or whether it's uh the the gentleman who went on to do final in cal i'm like okay either one (laughs) they're both good to me so, as I said, 2000, the year 2000 is when After the Incall was published. People were wondering whether it would ever be completed. And be- between 2008 and 2014, Jodorowsky, he reworked the story slightly. It's still pretty, like the central aspect is the same. A lot of the dialogue is the same, but there are some kind of significant differences. And this time he he uh, teamed with the artist Jose Ledron, who we've actually already encountered. He was the artist for Sons of El Topo as well. Uh, so the story of After the Incall was rewritten to provide a separate narrative for this volume. In Final Incall, John DeFool finds himself in the middle of a galactic war between the uh, Bethacodone and Elohim. The only way to save the galaxy is to find Luz Degara, who, like other characters from previous volumes, like Kill Wolfhead, Gorgo the Fowl, and Kiamon, makes a reappearance. Final Incall is more serious and epic in tone and blends elements of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, this new artist, Jose Ledron, it's... It, the way that I said with before the Incall, like that I thought I was going to have that difficulty adjusting to the art because it would be so different, but then ended up being pleasantly surprised. This was an adjustment for me, but I have to say I wasn't unpleasantly surprised by it. And maybe it's because I read after the Incall first and I was like, I'm just not in tune with the art for this. And though Jose Ledron's style is very, very different, it's also very impressive and very detailed. And it brings something very different to the story 
than what we had seen with Mobius's art so far. It's no way, I don't think, worse in terms of the quality of the art on display. It's just different. And it still serves a story that's also very different, very serious in the final Incal story. Let's get some general thoughts on the final part of this saga uh, and whether it was satisfying as an end to the Incal saga overall. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, you, Julia. What were your thoughts on final Incal? I feel like I didn't like it as much as I liked the f- the before and the Incal. Like, I feel like I would say, read the Incal, read before the Incal, uh, after and final are okay. Like I really, really enjoyed the when you have all four versions of John together. I thought right. that was really fun, and I really had a mm-hmm. good time with that. Um, the rest of it just felt—I don't know—it didn't feel very satisfying, and I, you know, it kind of ruins the idea of the loop a bit, which mm-hmm. I didn't like. Absolutely, and I was like, I was like, oh no, I need it. I want it. I loved that it was a loop. That made me really happy. It was a loop. So to take that away kind of lessened it a little bit for me. I, I do have to say that the after the incall. Uh idea that the original novel was just a dream even though it's it's not really just a dream it's it's supposed to be at least considered to be a dream by john defoul i'm glad that they abandoned that for the actual version of final incall and they they give that a little they give the events of the original novel a little bit more weight uh but that's that's interesting to hear i i think i feel very similarly and part of that might be the fact that it's shorter i know that's a weird thing to say but it just so there's something about the heft and the length of those first two novels that gave everything an extra bit of weight. There's a part of me that makes that feels a little rushed through what's going on in this, or maybe there just wasn't as much to say. Liam, your thoughts on Final Inkle? The art is w- like very much my style. Yeah, like like the and I kind of said this when we talked about his art on the on the El Topo, the son of El Topo stuff, that I just really like this style of art. I really like this artist. I feel like I want to read other things this artist is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very into it. And so that, at first, really sold me on it. Uh, and for me, personally, I think I'm less enamored of the cycle of everything. Like, when I finished the Call, I thought of it as part of a cycle that could now end right like i actually saw it as as a final as like uh well this time he's going to remember and so it's fine i would i would say if 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 there weren't any other books i would have thought that as well yeah i would have thought like oh okay now he's going to break the cycle right right and so um and so for me uh the idea that we're moving towards something else i i like that i also like the shifting it's you know what it reminded me of, Doug, as a comic book person? It's like how Marvel just continually reboots characters until, like, you're, you're like if you're reading Marvel right now, all the characters kind of remind you of stuff, but everyone's sort of shifted a little bit, you know? Like, everyone's not quite who you thought they were. Sure, of course. If your only yeah, experience yeah, yeah. is Chris Claremont. That's, See, that's sort a, of that's the thing about comic books that I feel like be so confusing and so frustrating that this oh, is character no, you no, fall no, in love no. with and they're not that they're not that same person no, anymore. I Julia, I one hundred percent agree. But what's crazy for me about the, this in the context of the in call is John is still John in my mind. 
So Defool just keeps being dropped into different universes where it's all the same people, but they're all functioning in slightly different ways. So in the in-call, President's bad. Not that bad. But then in the final in-call, President's the worst. Everyone else, not so bad. And yeah. the idea that they're like, <laughs> I guess we got to work with the techno pope. And I do like that it ends with the, the techno people still being menacing. Like, you still get the feeling of like, oh, if there's ever an after the final in call which is totally open i don't think this book has an ending at all actually yeah um well it's but, like friday the 13th part four the final right, chapter right 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 <laughs> if there is another if there ever was another one you get the feeling that the techno people would again be the villains you know yeah because i feel like he's responding to the modern world right where right. everybody is just sucked into technology and why don't everybody just become robots and you know like what's the use of being right, human anymore right, right. because all anybody cares about is technology so I think that comes through very clearly. And I feel like this whole, all of these books are just kind of such a idiocracy send up of society and sure. how yeah. it's just crumbling into disorder. So all those aspects I really like. And so I want to be like, and therefore I liked it, but it, what I don't like about it that I think makes it seem subpar is there's so much less to chew on. Yeah. Like you said, it's shorter. It's not just that it's shorter. It's thinner. It's lighter. It's less thick. I feel, um, and and maybe maybe I feel that way because I've read the other two and now I'm reading this in quick succession. But my feeling was like, there's less there. There, it, it feels at times like more of a highlight reel. And my worry is, even though I just said I love the artist, the artist is more my style than even Mobius is. It's definitely a kind of art I love. I worry that it's a kind of art that encourages glossing, that encourages mm. speed. Like it's an art that feels very dynamic, which is cool. But Mobius, the work with Mobius felt like there was more going on and that there was more talking and there was more details in the narrative. Uh, and so I don't know. It might just be that Jodorowsky is like, let's just wrap it up. Like, let's go quickly. This is all I want to do. But it also might be him. Remembering especially that this is Jodorowsky at this point in his late 80s when he's totally trying to finish this story. But I think it also might be the artist, man. Like, it, one of the things we do sometimes is we say the story is the writer and the artist is just there as like an illustrator. And that's not how comics work. No, right. The, 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 the way comics work is that in some ways the artist can be more important than the writer. In fact, famously, there are all kinds of comic writers who stopped working with artists because they felt like their script had nothing to do with the comic that came out. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think it's worth keeping in mind that the, the artist is an important aspect of the storytelling as well as the aesthetic. And and I wonder that as much as I love this artist, I wonder if his style encouraged a speed of storytelling that in the end... I'm not going to say it doesn't work at all. Like, I still think it's pretty good, and there's a lot of stuff I like about it. It's just not necessary. Like, I would Agreed. say, yeah, you got to read the in call. You got to read before the in call. This is just, you could skip it, and it doesn't matter because I, especially because it doesn't really end. And so it's like, you, you can't even say, like, well, it's not that great, but you should read it for the ending. The ending to me is is nothing. It's it's just the next step in a future story. If anything, the ending of the in call feels like more of an ending. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though it's part of a cycle. I mean, I do like the fact that that this 
that the final incul takes before the incul so seriously. Like the events of that are so important, like the introduction of the pirates, the introduction, but Luz in particular, who's so important to this story. But if you did not read before the incul, you wouldn't know why necessarily, especially how much of a transformation that character had gone through between the beginning and end of that story and continues to go on through here. I like it. I mean, I really do like it. And the art, I think, is really out of this world. And it's something that I really appreciate as well. It's not Mobius, but it's something different that is of of a similar quality, just in a different style. And it's nice that we can even compare those two styles together to some extent. But uh, I will say that the satisfaction I felt at the end of the Inco is not something that I felt at the end of this story, even if it felt at sometimes like a bonus. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, look... This can either exist or not exist. That is your choice here. It doesn't make the Inkle any worse. It It's more of this stuff that you love, and the, some of it is, is of incredible quality. It just doesn't feel like it has the potency necessarily, and maybe it couldn't. Maybe it couldn't have the same potency as something written by someone in his 60s, as someone who's written being written by someone in his late 80s. Maybe there's an element of exhaustion with it maybe it's the fact that at the point that this was written the entire universe had been fleshed out with these other comics as well and it has to kind of serve that to some extent as well i don't want to make it seem like before the Inkle is something that you shouldn't check out i think it's tremendous i still think it's an incredible piece of art it just doesn't i don't think live up to the previous parts of the series which again is less of a criticism of this work as it is uh, a, a testament to the quality of what came before um, I did say already that I don't think it that what happens here damages what came before any in any way. Just uh, sticking with you for a second, Liam. D- does does anything here make the just reading the Incul less impressive? Is anything that that kind of undoes some of the goodness of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I do think my my preference is. If I if I get to have one, would just be the in call by itself. Right. I don't. I, as much as I think people should read before the in call because it's really great, I don't need it for that story, and I don't need this for that story either. Um, but I don't think it hurts the in call. Like it doesn't ruin anything. I think it's just different, and it has different stuff on its mind. I think Julia's right; it's responding to a different world. Uh, but I also think philosophically, it's coming at a different angle. And for me, and I'm again uh, uh, really just uh, 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 repeating what Julia said. The most poignant, interesting thing for me is the three Johns. When those th- when there are four rather four John yeah. DeFools are there. I really like that. It really felt like a very Yodorowsky moment. And it's a moment where I'm like, oh, you've been all four of these people. You know, like this is you. Like this is this is kind of auto in a way. Like like not directly in the way that like uh, you know, uh uh the poetry movie is, but but still representative of, of the various people he's been. And mm-hmm. I and I kinda like that. I thought that was really uh, almost poignant in a way, and the way that it resolved was interesting. But the rest of it is like it's good, but it's not it's it it it, it doesn't mess anything up, but it feels superfluous. Do you agree with I, that, uh, Julia? I, do you think it's- I do? Yes, I do agree with that. I feel like the you know the thing with the Incal which is so cool is because it, it's it's caught in a loop, right? So it doesn't really end there. So you really can't make a sequel because it's just going to loop around again, right? right so right, you right. can't expand on that. So that's why before the Incal is great because you're like, okay, well you get more story, but it doesn't affect mm-hmm. the Incal at all. But this is like, okay, we're going to take that and we're going to change it entirely. And then I go, ah, eh, kind of don't like that. 
Like it doesn't <laughs> bother me enough. Like, you know, I will take all the Jodorowsky in the entire world and any bonus Jodorowsky you want to give me, I will fucking read with glee. But if you were to ask me, should I read them? Like, are they, are they imperative? I would say no. Regarding the ending of uh, the final end call, Jodorowsky said the Inkle isn't finished. In the last issue, John runs away with Luz, and together they go on to the conquest of the universe. He becomes the Inkle. But what is the Inkle? It's white and black. It's the moon and the sun. It's the totality of being. At the end, a rebirth takes place. John enters the light. His soul is the light. Would either of you like to see future Inkle stories told, whether with or without Alejandro Jodorowsky? Sticking with you first, Julia, would you like to see more of this series? Mm, I don't know. I don't know where else you could go with it, really. I guess if you wanted to go like you were just mentioning where you could go in that direction, sure. But I don't feel like I would be interested at all if Jodorowsky wasn't involved. You know, and I guess he would have to be in some way would have to be his story just interpreted by somebody else. Um, but I feel like he's it's such a he's the heart of it. And if he wasn't involved, I don't think I would be interested. I think you would notice right away if it was someone else's voice. Right. Yeah, I, I, agree. I, I think you can tell other stories in this universe with other authors doing it. But even then, you would notice the different the, the different tone or the different way of kind of developing that universe. But that would be OK as long as it felt separate. But. It would be hard to think of another Inkle without Jodorowsky at its helm. Liam, uh, your thoughts on that? So my inclination is to completely agree with Julia, although we're only looking at the Inkle, right? When I realize there's a whole Jodo-verse, sure. it might be possible that maybe the Inkle is done, but perhaps further Meta Baron stories or other aspects. I want, I want the Depot spinoff. Can we get the Depot spinoff? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think saying, like, if it's not Johto, then it can't be in this world is not necessarily true. I'm just not convinced that the Incall needs more. I don't know that John DeFool needs more adventures. Right. Um, and, and if they and if someone else is going to do it, I don't know that they would be able to do it the way that Iorowski does. But I don't know that that's true of everything in this universe. And in that sense, John DeFool could show up as a side character. Right, right, you know, right. he could show up in some of these other things. I just, I just, uh, I don't know yet. I think I'd have to read them. Now, if we finish, if we do end up doing all of his comics, we finish them all and we're like, all of these comics have to be written by him and no one else could write them. <laughs> that's still a possibility. I'm just not sure that that's true. Just a reminder, of course, that, that the universe that these take place in is explicitly referred to as the Jodoverse because of its uh, connection and, and creation by Alejandro Jodorowsky. I mean, I, I agree with that side of things, that there could be side stories told in this universe by any number of authors. That said, can you imagine the pressure of, of someone deciding that they're going to tell another Incal story and like having not been picked by Jodorowsky, just doing it themselves, it would just be almost impossible to live up to, especially knowing that Mobius has passed on and, you know, just that collaboration at yeah. its core no longer exists. Uh, Liam, final thoughts on Final Incal and the entire series. What, what, what do you want people to take away from these comics? How much would you recommend them? Uh, is there anything that people should watch out for? Is there anything that people should, um, should, should, uh, aim at first i just think if you're a fan if you're a fan enough of yodorowsky to be listening to this podcast you should read <laughs> the, the in call you should probably read his other comics too but i, I just think the in call specifically it, it's it is i think thematically interesting for what he's doing um i wonder if i you know i haven't 
dove as deeply into some of his nonfiction stuff. I'm wondering if that, you know, whereas I feel like I have some insights on the Holy Mountain, I wonder if the Incal would be, you know, opened up a little bit if I if I knew some more of that. Uh, but uh, you know, I I guess there might be people listening who are casual Yodorowsky fans, and I guess that they <laughs> two can... and a half hours in, they're like, eh, Yodorowsky's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. Like I said, I'm admitting it's a possibility, but in my mind. You should read this. I, I just think it's worth your time. Um, personally, I don't know that people have to do uh, the other ones, Before or Final. If they want to, I think Before is is interesting. Um, and I found it really compelling, but I, I don't know that makes it necessary. I think everyone could skip the Final, but I know that the sort of folks who probably are going to actually find these comics, they're going to read the Final. You know what I mean? They're going to read it. Right. I just, you know, go into Final knowing it's not as great as the other ones. Julia, your final thoughts on the Inco? I, I completely agree. I feel like if you're into Jodorowsky, you should read these because it's him. It's so him. And as someone who loves film and is still a, quite a newbie to comic books, it's interesting to see a different side of him. And I feel like you do see this kind of other side where he's kind of a pulp science fiction writer, which is completely different than anything he does. And yet he still manages to, you know, put in all of this enlightenment and all of his, his, his theories about life. And so it just feels like a really cool thing. And so it was something for me, really enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. And I think if you like Jodorowsky, spend some time in the Jodoverse. Yeah. 100%. The influence of, the Inkle has been as substantive in some ways as that of Jodorowsky's Dune. You can see it referenced in works as diverse as Luc Besson's The Fifth Element in particular, which has been uh, <laughs> explicitly references uh, the work of Jodorowsky and Mobius. And But things like like Futurama uh, reference uh, it. I mean, a very similar kind of world that's on display in those two works, as we see here in the Inkle. There's been some attempts to adapt the Inkle into different forms over the years. In the 1980s, a Canadian animation director, Pascal Blaise, created a short trailer for The Inkle, uh, but the movie was never actually made. It's been updated in 2011 and 2016. It's actually unbelievable. It really does kind of feel like Mobius's drawings brought to life. I don't know if it would have been able to keep up that quality at a reasonable budget for a full length, but there is a part of me that thinks that an animated version like that would be the ideal adaptation of The yeah, Inkle. I yeah, agree. It looked really cool. Yeah, uh, Liam, any thoughts on that uh, on that trailer? I think it looked really cool. I think getting those uh, those uh, drawings to have fluid movement would actually be harder than it seems. Yeah, it's so easier that, on a trailer than it would yeah, be for a full. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it does. It still does make me feel like it could be done, especially now. Uh, maybe even with the addition of some sort of. I would prefer a certain, certainly cell animation, but even with computer animation, that you could tell this story in a little bit more of an accurate way. But that really isn't what we're going to be getting. <laughs> really what people have been focusing on for the last few years is an idea of doing a live-action adaptation of The Inkle. And in fact, Nicholas Winding Refn was, uh, was attached to at least the idea of doing one uh, over the last few years. And recently yeah. there was an announcement about... A mass, I mean, this was a huge thing. I mean, we were all very, very excited to hear that there was a hand-picked director by Alejandro Jodorowsky. We're, it appears we're going to get an adaptation, a big-budget Hollywood adaptation of The Inkle, directed by Taika Waititi, the director of, director of Jojo Rabbit, the director of What We Do in the Shadows, 
the director of Hunt for the Wilder People, uh, d- the director of uh, Thor Ragnarok. I mean, someone who's worked both on large and small scales, very talented comedic director, uh, but certainly not a choice that I was expecting whatsoever. Uh, it, it really kind of took me by surprise to hear it. Uh, any thoughts, Julia, on that announcement, uh, the Inkal film by Taika Waititi? Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised because Jodo had kind of teased that like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to announce it. I'm yeah. like, man, I don't know. This is going to be like, I don't think, you know, because having just read it, I was like, I don't think you could do it, man. Like, I don't know if it's possible to do. Who could do it? And then I thought of all the people who I would dislike doing it. And then I was like, oh, yay, Taika Waititi. The thing that's so great about him is he seems to not give a fuck. You know, like it's something that this seems like an insurmountable amount of pressure to do this. And I feel like he has such a flippant kind of, you know, carefree kind of attitude that I love about him. And he's so absurd and strange and weird and funny. And I feel like bringing that element in would be really interesting. And of course, for me, I'm like, oh, but it's not Jodorowsky because it's not going to be really what he wants. And I understand Jodorowsky is 92 and maybe cannot, you know, t- do this anymore. But I feel like if he was Taika Waititi is going to be able to smash it, I think. It was a little sad in the announcement video seeing Jodorowsky admit that he was just too old to do it himself. But the fact that he was able to have, I mean, we don't know how much influence he necessarily had on this choice, but that he signed off on it that he was part of the announcement, that they even used footage from Jodorowsky's Dune in that announcement, it really felt right. And there's a part of me, you know, because I'm cynical and because I live in the year 2021, that feels like there's no way that this will actually happen, that somehow it'll become Taika Waititi. You guys are so so suspicious. You don't think Dune 2 is going to happen. You don't think this is going to happen. I mean, when Dune has part one at the end of it, uh, I think they're probably going to make a second one. I, I'm, I don't pretty, think I'm pretty confident. Com- I'm a lot more confident about that Dune follow-up than we're going to get a live-action version of the Inkle in Oh, I think Taika Waititi, I mean, he won a fucking Oscar, right? He yeah, can do I know. whatever the fuck he wants. It's, it's and almost, I feel like he, if he wants to do this, let him do it. Honestly, if if they that announcement had been refing instead, I'd be like, ah, oh, we're probably never seeing that. But Waititi, he, that one gives me pause. But I have a question to the two of you, is that, can this be done? Can you make a faithful live-action adaptation of the Inkle? It is so dense. It's all we've been talking about. It's It was almost impossible for us to discuss it. And even then, we talked about nothing, right? We talked about nothing regarding the plot. A, could you tell it in a single film? And B, like, what would that even look like? Could you make the Inkle? Liam, are you, is he going to be able to make this movie in a way that's going to be a recognizable adaptation of this novel? Well, I mean, you know, we just referenced Dune, right? If... Uh, if uh, uh, Villeneuve can get away with being like, yeah, just put part one at the end. It'll be fine. (laughs) If he can get away with that, surely Taika Waititi can, who I think uh, has clearly proven uh, his appeal to mass audiences and also his creativity. So I just think like, unless, I mean, literally uh, Thor Love and Thunder would have to be, the lowest grossing movie of all time for me to feel like <laughs> he's not going to be able to get whatever he wants. And so my, my feeling is it's going to be most likely not one movie. Um, uh, but I think it very much is going to be as much of this story as he can get in there. Now, do I think that there are aspects that you could trim down and it wouldn't hurt the movie? I, I guess so, but it would be hard 
because some of the stuff that maybe isn't essential to the story long term is probably like fan favorite stuff. So I think mm. it is a delicate balancing act, you know. Uh, but I, if I, I just feel like if anyone can do it and do it with humor, but also do it where it's their own thing, you know, because I, I personally think, um, you know, you saw it as kind of sad when Yodorowsky's like, you know, hey, I'm 93, I obviously can't do this, but we found someone that I believe can do it. Uh, I didn't see that at all, dude. I saw it as a flex. I'm like, even at 93, you want what TD to know. If I could do it, I would. But I'm basically <laughs> dead. The only thing keeping me, <laughs> the only thing keeping me from directing this myself, young buck, is that I'm I've almost passed to the next life already. So <laughs> that's it. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't even know your name because I'd be doing it myself. I saw it as that kind of flex. And I think the thing is, is that because that's who he is, it'd be easy for Taika Waititi to try to be Yodorowsky. But I don't think he was chosen to be Yodorowsky. He was chosen to be who he is. And so how does he uh, show enough respect to the original but still make his own thing? It's got to be his own thing. He's got to treat it the way that Yodorowsky was going to treat Herbert's Dune. He's got to. He's got to. And and I don't think that means sanitizing it or, or leaving out big parts, but it does mean figuring out how the story is going to be his story specifically. I think that the first half, you can make it. It'll be super expensive. Like, I mean, it's going to be an incredibly expensive movie. It has to be. You can make that first half. That final act, I, I just it's hard to imagine a Hollywood movie trying to recreate that final act in a way that in any way resembles how Jodorowsky did it in the novel. And I, I will be happy to eat my words. More than anything, I want Jodorowsky to live to see it, to see what that is going to be. He's going to live for a long time, you motherfucker. Stop talking about how he's near <laughs> death, because he's never going to die. He's going to transcend us all. He will outlive us all. All hail Jodorowsky. I want long, be- long live Jodorowsky. Look, look, look. I want to I feel the same way, Julia. But I really think, you know, he's got it. He at least is knowledgeable of the possibility of his mortality or else. No, no one would be directing this but him. That's just how I feel. But I need him to continue with his autobiographical series. So, you know, he's got it. That's right. He's got another five movies in him. Oh, yeah. Before we finish up, I have one final question for the both of you, which is Taika Waititi. He is going to make a live-action version of the Inkle. I now believe it. It's going to happen. Yeah. Who gets to play John DeFool in your fan-casting brain right now? <laughs> Any actor or actress in the world is available to you. Starting with you, Julia, who would you have play John DeFool? Okay, so I have some options for you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go from least likely to most likely, Okay. Uh, he okay. So first one, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, who I know mm-hmm. is beautiful, but I feel like he also can do rough really well, and I feel like he gets overlooked a lot. And I feel like he's an incredible actor, and I feel like he could totally nail this. No thoughts about Aaron Taylor Johnson. Okay, oh, I, I mean, I have thoughts on him, but only in the sense that I always think of his performance in in Godzilla, which is not his. Oh, I haven't. Moment. I have not seen. I have not seen Godzilla. <laughs> have you seen Nowhere Boy? Because he's amazing in Nowhere Boy. He is amazing in that he makes yes, absolutely. And it may, okay. you know what? As long as they let him keep his real accent, then maybe maybe. He'll oh be yeah. Great. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, next I have uh, James McAvoy. Ooh, I think he could do that pretty well. I think he does that like scummy kind of dude pretty well. Uh, That's actually also, a really interesting choice. 
Absolutely. Mm. He does have the look for sure. Um, next, I have uh, Adrian Brody, mm. who might be a little bit old for it, but I feel could really do the like hang dog, I don't want to be here kind of thing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, okay, last but not least, this is the one that I think that I, this is definitely the one I would choose. John DeFool played by Aiden Jodorowsky, Meta Baron played by Brontus Jodorowsky. <laughs> Boom, mic drop. You know what? I think that would be great. And why not? <laughs> why the fuck not? I bet, I mean, you know, I bet Jodorowsky would probably choose that if he couldn't put himself in the movie. <laughs> so, sure. Way. And, uh, and it, we've seen Endless Poetry and Dance Reality. Those are both, both of those gentlemen are incredible actors. I have no, I have every faith in the world in them. Liam, uh, you didn't have much to say about uh, Julia's choices there. Yeah, the, come on now. Uh, a few of them I had to Google because I couldn't remember right, right. who they were. Okay. Uh, for, I uh, yeah, oh, I don't Liam, know. could you tell us your choices? <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, what I want, what I truly want, right, is uh, a younger, skinnier clone of Gerard Depardieu. That's actually what I want in the role, mm. but uh, that's not possible, right? Uh, I also... Hey, this is fantasy. Anything is possible. Yeah, well, then, right. I, the other thing I, I want is a much younger... Um, uh, John Hawks, actually. Oh, I, interesting. Yeah. I, I think he'd be great. I mean, what I'm trying to uh, like, like I want, I want like gritty people. You know what I mean? And and I don't know. I don't have any good options uh, off the top of my head that are actually sort of like young enough to do it. You know what I mean? Um, and I'll be honest. One of the things about the series that isn't a bummer but it's worth acknowledging is it's very white everyone Mm. is very white and i think keeping with taika watiti it's very possible that uh that could change and john defoul could be anybody and um i thought that would make my decision easier and it made it even harder because then (laughs) i was like oh no there's so many other people (laughs) so i i don't know i don't know that i have a good choice but for for me uh, you know, like for example, like Aaron Taylor Johnson. I think you're right, Julia is a very interesting actor who I think could do it, but he just doesn't feel. I I kind of want John DeFool to look mean, to look like the kind of guy that if he saw you in the street, he'd be like, "Hey, get the fuck out of here." You know what I mean? Like, I want someone with a little bit of an edge. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the the person who I feel like uh looks the part, even though it would be uh reimagine casting uh but i don't think can act is actually uh Jesus from Jesus and marrow i think <laughs> i think he is exactly who i'm thinking of but he, he he doesn't act he's just a he's just a comedian but i have but, no idea who that is <laughs> yeah. well again this is part of my issue is that's a person whose name i can remember whereas most actors i'm like i don't know the guy who was in the thing and i don't remember their names at all. <laughs> Well, I did do two choices of my own. Uh, Liam hates both of them, but I'm going to say them. No, anyway. I really only there's only one that I dislike. I imagine is it okay? Uh, so one of my choices, and this is strictly because Taika Waititi has worked with him uh, previously in Jojo Rabbit, is Sam Rockwell. He is yes. in his early fifties, so he's probably a little old no, to no, play the part. He's perfect. I he's mean, still, he's he's amazing in everything he does. He is terrific, and I think he should. You know, I I think it's time for him to have like a big 
sci-fi epic starring himself, like, like where he is the core part of it. He can play sleazy. He can play lovable. What about I just, Moon? I mean, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> what about Iron Man too? <laughs> uh, but I just think, I mean, I think he's he could pull it off even yeah. at the in his early fifties right now. Um, but I'm I will never that, say no to the Rockwell. I would say that it's a fantastic choice. Though I think that the one that you have difficulty with is my choice, and this is probably my number one choice. It's George McKay from 1917 and the uh, movie Pride from a few years back. Uh, he looks the part. The problem, of course, is that he's too beautiful i imagine that's part of your uh difficulty with this choice but i think he has that grit within him we just haven't seen that in a lot of his performances up to this point where he plays a lot of wide-eyed innocent type characters but he's the right age he has the right look he's a terrific actor and i think he would uh excel at it liam so your thoughts please uh no it was sam rockwell i oh you don't like sam rockwell how could you have a problem with sam rockwell what the fuck uh, I don't like him for this role. I love Sam Rockwell. Uh, I don't think he has the vibe at all. Like, literally, if, if he walked into the room and I was in the casting team, I'd go, no, no, no. <laughs> Why? Have you not seen Confessions of a Dangerous Mind? You see him, like, go I don't down think that's, and get... I don't think that character is anything like John DeFull. No, but he does No, but he does have the point where he's, like, down and, and sleazy and disgusting and, like, he can go this that is, far this is, a, this is a Miami Vice thing. Oh, you uh, on Miami Vice, there was a guy whose job it was to walk around before they shot and say, this is Vice. This is not Vice. It has to go. This is Vice. Oh, I see. I see Sam and I go, no, I don't want him on set. I don't want him in the movie like that. Wow. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's just not the right feel for me. And yet you can't think of someone who is the right feel, though. Yeah. So. Right. Well, that's because I'm. But that's what I'm saying. What I what I'm picturing is a. Uh, someone who has the the sort of um, I want I, I I you know like I want a, a like I seriously do want a younger John Hawks. I just think John Hawks would be ripe for it. I think he has that vibe. But you know what I really want is not that though. What I really want is like uh, someone who I feel is because I think be, because of uh, uh, it's going to have probably an American feel to it. I'm picturing an angry New Yorker. Um, um, because I don't think it's going to be, fr- if it was French, then it's, it's a little bit different, but I just think with Taika direct, Taika Waititi directing it, it'll feel a little more American than it will French, you know? I guess we'll just have to see, uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts on the in-call, if you have any thoughts on who you think should star as John DeFool, please go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com and let us know. On the next episode of Jodowowski, we're going back to the film world with a film that neither of us, none of us, I should say, have seen. It's the film Tusk, which involves an English girl and an Indian elephant born on the same day. They share a common destiny. Uh, it's one of, not one of Jodorowsky's most beloved films, but that doesn't mean that it's not Jodorowsky and to the extreme. This was his return to filmmaking after the collapse of Dune on the next episode, Tusk. Julia, excited about uh, finally catching up with Tusk. Yes, man. A Jodorowsky movie I haven't seen. Huzzah. Even if it's not, even if it's not, you know, Holy Mountain, it's still lovely. The fact that it's uh, the lead is a girl on an elephant makes me very excited. Yeah, that's new. That's kind of new and exciting, right? 
it's I agree with you though. Anytime I hear about Jodorowsky and animals, I start to get a little bit nervous. I know. <laughs> I know. My my friend the other day we were talking about Santa Sangre and he's like, Oh, but that one's not that bad. And I'm like, An elephant bleeds out of its face, man. And he was like, Oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And I was like, uh, yeah. So hopefully no elephants bleed out of their face in this one. <laughs> Liam, excited for Tusk. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I think I'm a little anxious because it's the one that I don't hear about ever. So that, you know, that that gives me a little bit of anxiety, but I'm still more curious than I am anxious. Well, you'll be able to hear our thoughts on Tusk in the very near future. For now, if you want to check out more episodes of Joe Dawowski, why don't you head over to Cinebunks.com to see the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord, including all of our themed uh, shows, including Joe Dawowski. Or if you want to check out all of our previous episodes, go over to Cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Cinebunks is there at, at Cinebunks. And uh, Cinema Smorgasbord is there at Cinema Smorg. Check out all of our links to all of our various social medias on those locations and leave us reviews where you can. Liam, where can people find you on the internet? I mean, they can, of course, uh, listen to the multiple podcasts I'm on uh, at cinepunks.com, uh, or they can find me on Twitter at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. 100%. And, of course, that's linked over at cinemasmorgasport.com as well. Julia, thank you once again for joining us for an episode of Joe Dawowski. I know it was a big time commitment, a lot of reading to do for this episode. It takes a lot longer than just sitting down to watch an hour and a half long movie or so. Where can people find you and your work online? Give me all the Joe Dabrowski all the time, man. I, I, as I said, I am into it. I will go the long haul. Uh, you can find me online on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I am at Julia C. Marchesi, and I love to talk to folks, especially about Joe Dabrowski. So talk to me about this glorious, glorious man. <laughs> Uh, and you can, of course, address any of us on social media. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And we'll link all those into the show notes as well. But for now, it's time for us to say goodnight. We're going to be back again with another Alejandro Jodorowsky classic. Good night, everyone. Good night.